Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter and author of The Modern Fire Officer, Jared Vermeulen. Now, this conversation I was able to do in person down in South Florida, and we discuss a host of topics from Jared's early life, the Dutch and Sicilian influence on his childhood, his journey into the fire service, his unique perspective on leadership, his own powerful mental health story, unpacking the 2472 work schedule they have in his department, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jared Vermeulen. Enjoy. Well, Jared, I want to start by saying thank you for welcoming me to your friend's studio here. We are in an influencing space, so uh, I feel very young and modern at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, and also thank you for meeting me here to discuss not only your journey, but your new book. Of course, man. This is fun that we get to do this in person. We're both Floridians, so it's exciting. Absolutely. So for people listening, where on planet Earth are we sitting right now? Right now we're in Stewart, Florida. Uh, but I am a native of Jupiter, Florida. That's where I was born and raised. So we are in Florida. So starting in Jupiter then, tell me about your early life. Tell me what your parents did and how many siblings. So uh, both my parents are uh, direct descendants of 20th century immigrants. So my mom's side, is they're all Sicilian. They all came through Ellis Island. Uh, my father's side, they're Dutch. That's where Vermeulen comes from, if you're wondering. Uh, most people think it's German, but it's Dutch. Uh, they came over uh, mid-century, so family of immigrants. They came with nothing. The, the Golden Road wasn't paid for them. They came from nothing and, and put things together and made it happen. Um, my, both my parents came from broken homes, unfortunately. They got married young, um, and they had nothing they worked hard. My dad worked his butt off. My mom worked her butt off. She was a seamstress and a drafter. So if those listening, that's before CAD. So there's no computer-aided design. She had to have the big table with the glass front with the light through it and, and draw an entire house plan by hand. Uh, my dad was an electrician by trade. He owned co-owned Mako Electric for a while in Jupiter and then he left that, went to the school board. He was an electrician most of my life. Um, growing up, we were like, I would say, lower middle class. Um, they moved to Jupiter from uh, Fort Lauderdale. They Originally, their families moved from the Northeast. And then they moved away from there to kind of find cheaper housing and, and find a place to start a family. They had me. 
Um, I was a handful. <laughs> I had a lot of food allergies, uh, serious food allergies that would make me either extremely uh, crazy, hyperactive, or violent. So it took my mom a while to figure that out because back then no one really understood what food coloring was or food dyes. And a lot of these issues that we're very aware of today, So, and they were in everything. So she had to start at square one. Okay, you can only eat this, you can only eat this, and then slowly put these things into my diet and then realize, okay, holy moly, this has a super effect. One of them was uh, Sunny D, <laughs> the Sunny that, Delight. That's just pure orange juice, isn't it? You're right, yeah, pure, <laughs> pure orange juice. It's pure orange. <laughs> but that was like rocket fuel. If I got my hands on that, man, oh my God, I'd climb up onto the roof, try to jump off. I don't even know. But so they figured that out. But unfortunately, because I was such a nut, they only had me. I was, you know, I'm the only child. So I wish I had a brother, a sister, a sibling, you know, to share that experience with. But unfortunately, I'd, I have uh, some, you know, brothers in red like you. And uh, the the guys here at the Influencing Place are like brothers to me and, and good friends. But so growing up... Um, my parents worked hard to make ends meet. I went to school and my dad would pick me up from school and we'd go do side work uh, till around eight or nine at night, eat dinner, I go to bed. And then a lot of times I do my homework on the bus going back to school. So I grew up understanding what a dollar meant. Um, a lot of times to, to get stuff to play with as a kid, my mom would bring me to a thrift or thrifting their stores or uh, garage sales on Saturday, and she'd give me one dollar and say, "Make make it work. Whatever you can get for that dollar, that's that you know you can you can have for toys and stuff." And it it sounds kind of mean, or but they didn't have their had little means, but it taught me a lot. It taught me about what a dollar meant, and it taught me how to haggle. And I haggled the hell out of some people. <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> with a, you that. With a buck. Yeah. One of, one of my greatest haggles was that it was against somebody that had a, a whole box of Transformers. And I wanted, the, they were the old old style, the real metal ones, the really nice ones. And I got that whole thing for a dollar, man. I wouldn't leave that dude alone. But, but it taught me what work was. It taught me what a dollar was. Um, and uh, my dad taught me how to use tools so I could be helpful to him. We we did some uh, renovations together to make money for the family. Um, and growing up, I I didn't ever think about being a fireman or a paramedic. Never. I'd, I'd watch shows like ER and think to myself, I'm never doing that. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and watching like some of the tragedy that would happen in those shows. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's not for me. No, thanks. Um, so it never crossed my mind. Um, and as, as I got older, I was looking more to do industrial design, um, prototyping, something with my hands, something with building. And I was actually enrolled at the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale uh, to do that. And then some friends of mine came to me and said, hey, uh, don't do that you should become a fireman instead. And I told them, I never even thought about doing that. Tell me about it. And they said, okay, well, this is a schedule. This is a benefit package. You'll start at this. You could spend time with your family during the week, X, Y, Z. And I said, I think I'll do that. <laughs> you know, so they, they helped me to do that. And and uh, that's actually one of those was John Cuomo. I think you met yes. him. Yeah. Briefly, so he's been a friend of my family for a long time. I was actually the ring bearer at his wedding. Oh wow! Yeah, so uh, and his father actually gave my wedding talk. So 
at the time was going through uh, fire academy then i switched you know and uh emt paramedical other thing but um so when they when they first came to me and said you know do this I said, okay what do i need to do you know those three things so i said okay i put in my applications to emt and fire academy first emt accepted me it was at pbcc at the time palm beach uh, community college so i went right away i, I was 18 um in like 2004 i think and uh I did that, loved it, weirdly enough. Uh, and then I went to try to get into fire or paramedic and did not, unfortunately. Um, I didn't have enough points at the time. This was you know, before the uh, meltdown, the economic meltdown, and it was hot for everyone was trying to become firemen at the time. So I took a year off and I traveled everywhere that I could go. I, we made some money doing construction after all the hurricanes came through in 0405. And every time I'd come back from a, a trip, a hurricane would hit, and then we'd go around and, and help people fix things, get paid, and make make cash. And then I would go and travel some more. So I spent somewhere around three months in South America. I spent a couple months in, in Europe, um, some time in, in Canada, in the Caribbean, um, Central America. Uh, did a lot of travel and learned a lot. Uh, during that that time that what I learned was that I better be appreciative of what I have because I, I tell you we're in in this living in this country we get a little confused at what life is really like outside of it and that's why people are trying to jump the border every day and I don't blame them because I'd be doing it too. If I knew it was on the other side, I'd be jumping that border with them. And uh, what it taught me to do is appreciate what I had and to realize that uh, I could be a lot more content. And and that's an important part of life, obviously. That's, you know, purpose and meaning, contentment and happiness. If you can find those things, then uh, you're doing pretty dang good, you know. So that helped me a lot. It helped me definitely in my future because it it helped me that contentment gave me peace and when you have peace you're able to get things done a little bit easier i would think um so i'm kind of digressing a bit on that but um so in between emt fire um or what i thought i'd try to get into fire i was traveling 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 um and uh instead of getting into fire I got into paramedic next so i went through paramedic I met my soon-to-be wife during that time. Uh, we were both young. Um, and then I got into um, the Fire Academy. During Fire Academy, I started putting my apps out, really before it even. As soon as I got accepted, there was a few departments that if you were a paramedic already and you were accepted to go to Fire Academy, they would take your application. Boca was one of them. So I put it in. So my second day of Fire Academy, I had an oral interview at Boca Raton. And the uh, the guys at the Fire Academy were like, you're not even a fireman yet. You should go <laughs> take an interview. What do you know about being a fireman? And I was like, hey, if they hire me. But, you know, they love to bust my balls, but they were excited. They were excited for me. Let, let me have the time off to go do it. And thank God, because um, that job was was 
essentially waiting for me, you know, when I got out of fire Academy, our process is very long. So it was a couple months after I was done with fire Academy that I actually got the, the conditional offer. But, you know, I remember that day cause by then I was engaged and I was working at a hospital as a medic and I was working at AMR as well, which is an ambulance company down here. Um, and I was like, I can't survive doing this. <laughs> I have to get hired and be able to, you know, support her and, and us as a family and, and have a home and do all the stuff, you know, adults do. And, uh, yeah, when I got that call from, from Boca, they said, Hey, do you want to work here? I said, yes, I do. And, uh, you know, 16 years later, here we are kind of thing. Well, you ended up obviously working in one of the, one of the most well-known, um, fire departments for a specific reason. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to go, all the way back, and I'll credit, it was either Jim Moss or... Um, uh, Josh Chase. Thank you, Josh Chase. I listened to both of those on the way over here. Um, you talked about the upbringing around the family table and the servitude through the Sicilian culture. Yes. Which I absolutely had in the UK in my upbringing as well. So I'd love to expand on that. Yeah, so um, w- with our family, we took care of my great-grandmother. She stayed at our home uh, later on in her life. It was like an assisted living type situation, but, you know, the Sicilians, they're tight. You can't, you can't send a Sicilian to an old folks home. You know, it's, it's impossible. And, and it shouldn't be. You know, you should take care of your family. So she would make a meal for 20 people every Sunday with the stipulation that we had to clean it after, you know, obviously after cooking for 20 people, she was in her 90s and 80s, 90s at the time. So, you know, she shouldn't have to clean it. So we did. But what that allowed us to do, because we were just a family of three, my parents and I, and, and, you know, she made four, you know, and then my you know grandmother, um, her daughter, my mom's mom, um, we could invite a lot of people. And we did every Sunday, you know, either from our, our uh, church, from our congregation, or uh, friends, you know, other family, whatever it is, but it, that table was packed. And it was like the old Sicilian style where you have a table, it's only so long, then you have like every other table that you have in the house <laughs> attached to that table, and you're just throwing like sheets over it so that it all looks like a table, and every chair in the house is pulled up, you know. And, you know, we, we did that every every Sunday, soup to nuts, you know. And it was special for me because... At, at the time, there's no smartphones. There's none of the things that take us away from human connection. So I got to learn from people that were older than me, people that I probably never would have talked to you know, on the street, people that aren't weren't my age, you know, people maybe from a different walk of life. And uh, that helped, you know, me immensely. Now in my career, when I in a firehouse with uh, different ethnicities, nationalities, backgrounds. I have a better understanding. I've been around it more. Uh, but how that worked in a Sicilian household is is the, the host or hostess doted on, on those that were there to eat that meal, you know. We were there to make sure you had everything. You never sat. You never even looked at your food until every everybody on that table had a plate of food in front of them and had a drink of their choice was comfortable then maybe even after they had a second helping you sat and then you you ate your food so what that taught me was um a a servitude that's not negative 
Usually when you hear servitude, that's all of a, all of a sudden negative alarm bells. Ooh. But the, it's not negative. It's, it's, it's really beautiful in a lot of ways when you can do that and have pride in that because you're doing it for someone that you love or someone that you care about and you're, and you're making it comfortable for them. And then you can learn from them or have a, a conversation with them, have a relationship with them. And, it, and it's a really amazing thing. And it's, and it's a piece of life that's, I think, missing now from, from society. I think social media took it away. And it's it's pervasive, and it's making its way into the firehouse right now, and and we have to fight against that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of you know my time growing up on a British farm, especially on you know Sundays, for example. Sunday breakfast was a fry up, so you normally have it like about eleven, and that was a whole ordeal in itself. And you'd sit and talk for, I mean, literally hours, and then that would bleed into kind of mid afternoon where we'd have Sunday lunch, the roast. And again, another entire you know, thing. But I mean, we had all kinds of people, and I've talked about this on the show, walking through our door. And they may be gypsies. They may be a member of extended royal family. They may be the homeless guy that was living on our drive that we brought in. Um, and you get to see, like you said, all walks of life. It's very rude to interrupt in person. So you learn to shut the fuck up and listen to other people, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, versus talking over someone or typing over someone. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's the nucleus and it's where you offload the good, the bad, the storytelling, you know, the learning. Um, and what I've seen in the great firehouses is just like you said, if someone cooks, then we are literally wrestling them away from the sink. Yeah, Don't you even think about trying to injure clean. each other? Yeah, to, to exactly. wash the dishes. <laughs> yeah. You I know, keep telling my crew, like, guys, I don't want to write an injury report. So <laughs> you clean now, then you clean. Okay, let's relax. Yeah, yeah, but but it's the understanding. Like, yeah, this person cooked. We're gonna clean. Um, but also, yeah, that it's not even so much. You know, there's that book, Leaders Eat Last. It's not, you know, always making sure the last one. It's more out coming out of caring like you said about um serving yeah not servant as in oh i'm beneath you but you know i want to make sure everyone's okay i'm proud of making this meal and proud of everyone having the food they want the drink they want right all right is everyone good all right now i'm gonna join you and then like i said then you try and wash dishes and you get pinned to the floor and (laughs) told to to sit down (laughs) while they do the work but i think that's it that's that dynamic and you said in one of the interviews about you know, the firehouse being your home for 10, 20, 30 years. And I agree, that's, you know, how you act in the firehouse should be how you act in your home. And if you don't talk to your family and you go to your separate rooms, you're always on devices, that's going to bleed into the firehouse. Yeah, exactly. You know, growing up, I had that experience when I got to the firehouse. I said, I know how to do this. We all eat together and make fun of each other and yell and have fun. Sometimes Maybe get a little negative, maybe maybe a little emotional, whatever it is. But it's all part of the, being a family, and I, I really enjoy that that part of of the firehouse, you know. And one day when I retire, that's what I'll miss. You know, it's never it's never the circus, it's the clowns that you miss. Yeah. That old saying. So. And with the TV, I used to drive me crazy when they'd leave the TV on in certain departments because you know the, mm-hmm. that's you the first kill- thing they turn off at, at dinner. The guys always look at me. I'm like, turn it off, man. I don't want I don't want to be advertised to. I don't want to hear any of that bull crap. I just want it. Let's just have a good time. Yeah, I promise you, nothing on CNN or Fox is going to benefit your life in any way, nope. shape, no, or form. Not. But it's going to get an argument going or get yep. people spiraling down exactly. negatively. Exactly. So with the, the upbringing, you have a Sicilian mother, you have a Dutch father. Were there any kind of interesting 
differences between those two cultures that you can remember going with being in the same family? So my, my dad's dad was extremely abusive. Um, my dad left the house to escape that kind of abuse. And I mean, like abuse, he made them eat their own pet one time, eat their own pet, their own pet. Yes. Because he would, he would eat food in front of them and like steaks and they would have to eat like bread and weird stuff like that. And they would always complain like, why, why can't we have meat too? So when they went on vacation one time, he, they had a, uh, a pet that he killed and cooked and they ate it and told them while they were eating it, that's what it was. So I'm talking about abuse. I wonder what his childhood was like. I don't, I don't know. Unfortunately, I never met him. He was in jail my whole life. And he, as soon as he got out of jail, um, he reached out to all of my father's siblings and they all said, pound sand. And when they got to my dad, my dad said, listen, I'll put you in a hotel till you get on your feet, but you're not meeting my family. And he took off and I think he went to the Philippines and he passed away there and I never met him. He was selling cocaine. (laughs) So, yeah, it was just, so, um, I got to say, you know, my, my dad, I use him as an example a lot because he is an example to me, but he is a person that, um, was brought up in an environment where he could have been become that environment he could have become that and he made a choice in his mind to never do that because his his father was physically abusive too he uh pulled down his sister's pants in in front of a group of people when she was like 17 and spanked her butt at, at the table in front of guests he was a crazy person so thank god my dad got away from that and he never became that but um, he promised himself that he would never spank me out of anger. Like if he ever had to, he would wait uh, until he calmed down. And then most of the time didn't do that anyway. So, but I, Although I was, I got a lot of spanking. So, I was <laughs> so he did, he did spank me, but it wasn't out of anger. Um, but so, you know, he didn't have like a big culture, so to say. He didn't learn culture from from his father, unfortunately. So he latched on to my mom's family culture. So he's he's like a Sicilian, really. <laughs> he loves that culture. He loves like the whole host thing. So there wasn't really any butting heads. I think the uh, the Dutch people. I don't know if you've been to to Holland. They're they're easygoing. They're fun people. Um, so. If, if anything I could say about their culture, which is, I guess, my culture, having the, the Dutch heritage is that uh, they um, they respect a lot of other cultures and they and they like having a good time, mm-hmm. which is a Sicilian way in a lot of ways. Have a good time, you know, have a good time with your family, enjoy life, eat good food, make a loud, a lot of loud noises and, and yell. <laughs> you know? I had a Taekwondo coach who was also one of my um exercise physiology professors when i was in the university of north london willie peter um and the best way to describe him was like an asian gold member he was super yeah. dutch <laughs> so he didn't have the yellow tracksuit but uh, gold apart member. from that yeah, yeah it was yeah. it was the same kind of personality right. the same yeah. accent everything so yeah very fun people yeah yeah good people all right well then i mean that's an interesting 
observation and, and your dad is an incredible man because I'm my second book I'm writing now is highlighting that multi-generational trauma you know and I think that's that's it having the the foresight to realize what's happening and realize that it was going to then become your children's lives that is that is incredible human being because their truth was their childhood so to be able to step away from that and actually self-assess and say I'm not doing that because I had that in a, in a very different way and much much milder not abusive so much but I was spanked out of anger a lot mm-hmm. with whatever was close to hand so Dr. Scholl's yeah. wooden sandals and <laughs> wooden military canes and all <laughs> kinds of stuff um, but I ended up saying, I, I used to slap my little boy on, on the thigh, you know, when he was a kind of toddler age, just a little pat. But then I was like, no, this, this, this is sending the wrong message. Like, you know, re- trying to resolve a, an issue with violence, which is basically what it is, is kind of telling the kid the wrong thing. So I ended up, when he was at the age where he could start to understand what I was saying, just talking about kindness. Like, is what you're doing kind or is it unkind? And that... I, and that I never laid a hand on my son again. So I wasn't abused as a as a child, but it's okay to assess the way you were raised and go, all right, you know, whatever it is, 20, 2010, do I still agree with the, what I thought was parenting 27, you know, 20, 2007? And so having that constant reassessment and questioning the values that you thought were truths when you were raised oh well i was beat never did me any harm well was it good though as a kid being terrified that you're going to be physically abused by a parent is that the most healthy thing you know maybe not so for me personally i was able to navigate not ever spanking my child you know ever really because before it was just a little tap on the thigh um and awesome i think i did better than my dad in that situation so you know we constantly evolve so i think your dad's ability to overcome that pretty horrendous trauma is is admirable yeah well i mean because of that i had a really great upbringing had strong values in the family my parents are still together you know kind of like the poster child for stability really because i grew up in one house we didn't move um they showed a lot of love um i did get spanked though i'm pretty sure when every sicilian woman becomes a mother they hand them the golden wooden spoon that they're supposed to beat their children with uh-huh. so. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's just a sicilian mom thing they get a wooden spoon to whack you with when you're when you're being bad you know but it wasn't you know abusive obviously anyway so you ended up becoming a firefighter when you were school age what were you doing as far as sports and exercise I was big into skating and surfing, so I did a ton. I was on the surf team at Jupiter High just to pretty much get out of school because uh, <laughs> the surf team leader was the pottery teacher, and if there was good surf, he would just write you a note to say you could leave for the surf team and go surf. So I was like, yeah, I'm, boom, this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> you know, so I'd get in my, my car and show him the note, uh, going to the beach, you know, and shoot shoot to the water and I, I worked in high school too i did the uh, work program i actually worked in hr of all places uh for a development um and i helped bring in a lot of foreign work and for the uh the restaurant and different things that they needed done on the in the on the property and properties um so that kind of another look at uh, business, HR, that kind of thing. Um, 
and then I did that until I got into EMT, paramedic, and and fire. And then pretty much between that time, I I worked construction on the side, traveled, worked AMR, and worked at Gardens Hospital in the ER. So with the medic side, when you were on the ambulance and then in the ER, what are some of the career calls you remember from that portion of your life? I would say the biggest impact that that time had on me was the actual hospital portion because one of the hospitals that I, uh, it was more about the, when I was in the paramedic stage, I um, did my um, ride time, so to speak, at Columbia Hospital, which was a psych ward. Um, And that opened my eyes to a lot of parts of society that no one talks about that's not on the news that you don't get to see because it's behind locked doors so I did a lot of time there during your paramedic uh, time there you have to write a certain amount of reports do a certain amount of skills you know all the things that get you ready to become a paramedic on the street get hired I did almost all of it we changed chairs and made them on choir. <laughs> this was worse. <laughs> I did all of it in the uh, psychiatric ward, really, because it was so interesting and so raw. And, man, I learned a lot in there, you know, and just a, a look at life. A perfect example, I, um, at the time, I got drawn into um, a... What do they call that when they do the electroshock therapy? I don't know what it was. So I come into a room. They have a bunch of people lined up in the beds. And they gave me a bag valve mask. And they said, listen, we're going to do electroshock therapy. And they're going to stop breathing. You need to breathe for them until they get their, uh, their own respiratory drive back. So I was told them, no way. This is a prank. Come on. You know, so the whole time I'm thinking this is a prank. When when is this prank going to end? And I, the whole they bring this wheel, this cart over looks like some Soviet oscilloscope. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> woo, woo, you know, like the there's like uh, some parabolic lines going on this thing. Like and, they call it in the Kremlin. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at this like there's no way. Come on, you know, give up on this joke. They 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 put the uh, lubricant on the on like the paddles and they put on the, the first person's head just start shocking this guy I was like oh my god this is not a joke so I'm holding the, the bag valve mask they're like start bagging start bagging this guy you're an EMT right I was like yeah 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 so you know now I'm bagging this person's not breathing and they move on to the next one they start pre- prepping the next patient I'm thinking to myself oh my god how many are these in here <laughs> there's like 20 people you know I'm bagging and uh talk about growing up quick you know i was a kid i was like this exists i thought it was in a horror film you know stuff like that opened my eyes to to medicine and 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 just being a paramedic and dealing with you know the unfortunate sides of society and the people that need help and and all the different emotions that come with it it's crazy and and i'll tell you at that point i'm like what did i get myself into here a little bit, uh, but uh, obviously we're not doing that on the street. We don't have a 
you know, an oscilloscope to shock people in the back of a rescue. Although I think some medical directors probably pushing for things like that. They, the they want us to do like everything now on the street, you know, the defib pads on the, the temples yeah, and <laughs> yeah. double sequential defib to the temples. But <clears throat> yeah, I had some experiences like that at the psych ward where, um, yeah, I learned, I learned a lot quick about just society, really people in general, what, what goes on the, the lost and broken toys, you know, mm-hmm. without a better way to put it. There's a, a nursing home slash hospital in Orlando. Um, and I'd never been to this particular, we'd be there a lot and it was, you know, always like C. diff and just, you know, mm-hmm. the, the worst case yeah. nursing home scenarios. Every, every person you went there had rigor. They, the nurse told you they just took vitals 20 yeah. minutes ago. They're looking you know. to see if you're coming down the hall with their hands on the patient and then as soon as you turn the corner they start doing CPR exactly exactly yeah. like what, what vital did you get rectal temp that's the only yeah. thing you would have got 20 <laughs> minutes ago but um but it was heartbreaking because we got called and I can still see this poor kid's face now and there was a a ward like fifth floor or something I forget and it was all special needs children and like yeah. severely handicapped kids and this one little boy who was five I think by this point three or five I think about five was a shaken baby, baby. And so this child, I think, had been in this care facility for five years, staring at a ceiling in this room and started having respiratory problems. And this kid literally died in my arms at the hospital, which again, you could argue, is that good or bad, depending on how you look at it. But it was the same exact thing that the Island of Misfit Toys, this ward was all the children that had been discarded and forgotten about that society didn't want in their in their foreview. Um, and so they were, you know, thank God they were being taken care of by someone. But these are the um, the conversations that people don't want to have, you know, the mental health, the, the people with physical challenges. And at least there's now a much greater awakening of the adaptive community. And, you know, a lot of these people now that are afflicted or have some, you know, some huge innovation and, and progress when it comes to acceptance by society. But there are still these places where people are kind of shoved under the carpet because society doesn't want to see them. Yeah, that's the unfortunate truth. You know, the people don't want to, they, they don't want to think about that kind of thing. They, they definitely don't want to see it and they want to act like it doesn't exist. And that's extremely unfortunate, you know, cause it hurts. It, it hurts. It's painful to see, you know, um, when, when you go to wards like that and you, and you see these poor children, you see, I mean, even adults, it, it's, it more than just tugs at your heartstrings. It makes you ill inside, you know, to look at that. Yeah. So, but it's something that has to be dealt with as a community, you know, as a society. It can't be just something that's, you know, pushed into a, a closet and the door locked 10 times. Yeah. Well, it's back to your Sicilian dining room table. Imagine if they said, you can't sit here. Yeah. That's basically what we're doing. Right. Yeah. So you come from the pure EMS route, you go through Fire Academy, you have a rare event where you literally have a job waiting on the other end, which right. I commend you on, by the way. <laughs> um, walk me through, well, firstly, the Fire Academy, you know, you're a surfer. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's obviously an element of strength and fitness in that, but it's not carrying weight over distance, ascending stairs, etc. How did you do physically with a surfing background with the physical side of the fire service? Um, I was pretty active and I had a lot of friends that were a lot bigger than me. 
And so I had to hold my own a bunch <laughs> growing up. You know how that is. Um, you know, with just boys wrestling and carrying on, trying to beat each other up. But uh, when I, and I did a lot of soccer. Um, so I had pretty good cardio. I think that's what really helped me because when I first went to uh, the academy to do the CPAT, uh, not blessed with a, uh, a letter beginning my first name that's closer to A, I was the last in the, <laughs> in the group to go. So I'm just watching all these guys. And uh, some of these guys, I'm like, dang, this guy is ripped. Or, or this dude looks like he lift the house. And they're one by one failing the CPAT. Right. So I'm watching them go. Now I'm sweating. I'm like, oh, my God, maybe I should have done something to like prep for this. And, you know, they'd get off the Stairmaster, start running with the hose and just baby, fall right over. Baby, guys. baby deer legs. Yeah, baby yeah. deer legs. <laughs> you know, I was thinking rubber legs fall over. I was like, oh, man, I'm not going to make it. But at least no one's going to watch me fail because everyone's gone. I'm like the last guy. You know, Steve Xerxes behind yeah, us. Yeah, Xerxes. Damn it. With the X. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I, I go and I'm, I'm getting into it and I'm like, okay, I got this. I got this because of the cardio. I'm not going to say my legs weren't a little rubber here or there, but, and I'm not saying I wasn't, you know, pretty winded at the end, but I made it. And I think that's just from uh, all the cardio, because surfing is a lot of cardio. It, it's really like boxing, but you're laying on a board because you're punching the water. For three hours, really, you're paddling a board is serious cardio, especially in in bigger, heavier surf. So, I think that helped a lot, and just helped being so active all the time. You know, back then there's no smartphones. What are you going to do? You know, sit at, sit at home, and watch Prices Right. There's nothing to do. You know, you had to get out there and and do something. So, uh, being active helped a lot, and and having that cardio helped a lot. You know, not just the physical strength, but but. And I'm, you, you can see me standing, sitting here. I'm not a big guy, but um, that definitely helped a lot with the, with the physicality of it. You just took, took me back to Orange County when I tested for them. Um, I've, you know, I've always been a, an athlete, so you know, I, I was aware of my strength and conditioning. But when I was in Anaheim getting ready to go back, I prepped. I did time on the Stairmaster with you know, holding a 45-pound plate to kind of prepare for it i did a practice test in anaheim which is funny because the guys running it were like no one ever leaves anaheim what are you doing and well i have to go back the other side of america to because i just had a little boy and my wife wants to be with with his family um and so then i go to orange county and i'm sitting there and as you know you're on these chairs with your little lego helmet and you're you're getting ready to put the vest on and this guy who was ahead of me he must have been 220, 6'2, kind of Viking looking, you know, genealogy was just talking to me about how he was going to crush the forceful entry prop in three hits and he was going to do this and do that. And I was like, you know, indifferent, like, okay, good. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) All Um, right, I'll be watching. So then I see, I think maybe he was too ahead of me. I must have been right. Anyway, regardless, I think I was getting, you know, they put the vest on everything as the last person's going through. So you're ready to get on the treadmill on the, the stairmaster. And the same as, as like you said, he just got off the Stairmaster and there's one where you drag the dry hose. It may as well have been a filled five inch the way this dude, and he just (laughs) fucking tapped out right there. And I was just like, and that was what, and I wrote about it in a book about the bodybuilders that, that, uh, I tested with down here when we did the one test for a bunch of departments. And it's amazing. The peacocks, you know, it it is a certain (laughs) kind of show muscles out there. Yeah, uh, it is. Yeah, you want the go laying on the ground with them. Yep. 
Yeah, so this is a big thing is that, you know, when you talk about strength and conditioning, it's not about being calendar ready, you know, or winning the world's strongest man. It's having that strength, but that muscular endurance and, and the mindset. I mean, I've, I had another guy at my fire academy in the second, it was Firefighter 2, he came in and the whole time was talking about how he's doing it for his kids. He's going to be a firefighter. And he tapped out in the middle of the, you know, but was basically the combat challenge about, you know, before he got to the dummy. And I'm like, so your mind isn't there. It wasn't for your kids. Yeah. You're telling yourself it was. But yeah, I mean, what we're asked to do, it's we tough. don't, yeah, we don't look at ourselves as, you know, NFL stars or anything, but it, it's not easy. And if you're not preparing, right, then that's extremely arrogant because I know a lot of people that, you know, were strong, were fit, that didn't mm -hmm. make the CPAP. The other so. side of that is that <clears throat> it's not only that it's, that it's physically strenuous, but you have to think at the same time. That's what people don't understand. Like you could be out of breath or if, if you're an athlete, which I know a lot of firemen, like we're, we're athletes in a way we are, but in a way we have one thing over athletes that we have to think while we're doing what we're doing. It's not like we're running to catch a ball. We're, we're crunching number possibly. We could drag somebody out of a house and then have to figure out what the drip rate is on a medication. That's a whole nother story. <clears throat> when sleep deprived. Yeah, when sleep deprived. That's a whole nother story. And and you already did a CrossFit <laughs> workout at the station in your gas. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that there's a whole nother side to that. And uh, it's a lot to ask, you know, and that's part of what we're facing, you know, in, in modern fire service is all those things that we're asked to do. Well, the, we hit sleep deprivation. That was a good segue. So one of the things that Boca is most famous for from outside, of course, I mean, there's, there's so many things that you guys do, um, is the schedule. Right. And you guys have the schedule that I have argued for seven plus years now should be the industry standard in the fire service at least. Yes. Um, which is 2472. So you walk into the front door of this, this department. Talk to me about your experience. I mean, if you've got to contrast it with people in departments around you that didn't have that, and then, you know, lead me through how Boca Raton, Florida was able to secure what I would argue is a very progressive yet needed shift schedule. We had some very smart union leadership before I arrived. I don't know the exact history, but I know they fought for that and they did give up some things uh, some future benefits for that that I'm sure we were able to recuperate later on down the road. But they were smart enough to see that, hey, you know what's important? Sleep. You know what's important? You know, physical health. <clears throat> and what a difference. I mean, what, what, I think the biggest thing that people on a, on the regular 2448 or 2448 72, uh, Kelly Day, um, doesn't understand is that day in the middle where you're not, either coming off shift or going back on that day is gold. And I try to explain that to people. Um, especially I get like a lot of calls, somebody from uh, BSO or somebody from whatever fire department. And they, they Hey, uh, you know, we're kind of toying around with this idea, but the guys don't want to lose their Kelly day. And I'm like, dude, forget that Kelly day. Forget it. You have three days in between every, every shift after is a long weekend, right? So you can actually recuperate. If you get slammed on that day, like you said, that 24 hours is like working three, eight hour days. You're working three days in a row. You need three days off to recuperate where you can go to sleep and you can get your health back up. You know, you can let all those cortisols escape or whatever they do, you know, so you can, um, refresh yourself and, there's, it's so funny. There's such like, 
this latching on to that Kelly day were let it go, man, let it go and have all that time in between. You know, you take one day off, you have a full week off, right, on an exchange. You know, there's a lot of benefits to it. And, but really that day in between it, and there's times where we, like I've gotten smoked at work, just running all night, or if I'm on a 40 and, and getting smoked is, uh, now with kids and, and I'm, you know, I'm not 20 anymore. I'll, I'll end up getting sick after, after 48, I get, get beat up. At least I'll have time to recover. You know, I'll get like a snotty nose kind of thing, you know, where you're just, you're run down and barely that three days is enough to where I could go back to work and be like, okay, I have, I got reserve energy in the tank. Not that I'm running on fumes. Like I've actually recovered, and it's so important that three days. I, I don't see how you could recover in two days. I just don't. But even with and I don't the verbiage, think are. if you think about it, it's two days that you've got because we all have one day. Because what time do you get off in the morning on a shift? It's so our shift goes oh seven thirty to oh seven thirty. So you've worked seven and a half hours of that first day. So right, that isn't right. a day off. You've worked a full day. So it's the fact that you get two days, and this is right. what people struggle to understand. As you said, we work three eight-hour days crammed together. The third of those eight are on that right, yeah. first part yeah, of the four days. So that's the not sleep off. the days between. Yeah, so you yeah. only have a day of which most of us are thinking, I got to wake up at five. I got to get my gear. I got to shop for 24 hours worth of groceries. I got to clean my gym. You know, I got to do all that stuff. So this is it. It's like, this is the one that the day that you have is only the only true day off for you. And that's the one that's, as you said, the goal, because that, that you get off the first day, that second day, you wake up knowing that you don't have to go to work. That's the the mental health days I call it because I know I'm not going back the next day. There's something about that. You know, when you get off, you're like, oh, this day I'm like wrecked. Can't wait to go to bed. And then if the next day, if you have a 2448, you're like, oh, God, I got to go back to work the next day. You never have that that day in between where you're just like, this is my day. I'm not I'm not getting off duty. I'm not going back on duty. This is my day. And you get that between every one of your shifts. Well, I mean, even another thing that I get a lot is, oh, well, you know, if we do that, we're going to get paid less. And I always tell people, look, if you went to training and you went 40 hours, do they cut 16 of your hours? No, it's your hourly rate changes, but your salary stays the same. Yeah, that's a silly argument to me because in a career system, um, unless your city wants to have a crappy fire department, they're going to have to have a competitive pay fire department. And that's all part of it. It has to be competitively paid. Otherwise, people will leave it. It'll become a stepping stone, you know to other departments and they'll leave it and they'll go elsewhere. Right. So they're going to have to be competitive. And another competitive, uh, notch is having that, um, schedule. And that's why Boca has been, um, you know, up until pretty recently, pretty competitive is because we have that schedule and we, we still have competitive, uh, pay and benefits. So people look at our department and say, I want to work there. And then the benefit of that is we can usually then take the cream off the top when, when we have that. And if a city is smart, an administration is smart, the union is smart, they're going to all come together, all three of those entities, and say, you know what? We want to have great service in this city. We live in this city. Maybe we should do that. 
and and that that pay thing to me you're going to pay get paid less that that's not i don't think that's true by any means in a in a competitive market like you, if you want anyone to work there it has to be somewhat equal to pay yeah yeah well and then the, the financial side which i know you and i talked about and i've tried to kind of pull this out i'd love to actually see if we can find some of the the men and women that did forge that change in Boca, even if they've retired out, just to find oh, out I'll how they did it. I'll get you some names. I know who did it. Beautiful. Yeah. Because the long-term wastage of money by working our people to death, you, and I've had this from, I mean, every industry, from military to naval to aviation, they've all said the same thing. When they change to a more progressive um, environment where they invest in their people, they save all this money on injuries, work yeah, exactly. claims. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So there's your money, right? You yeah, just you, gotta... you have to wait for the return, though. Exactly, that's the thing. People, they, it's instant gratification. Where they, well, we put the money in. Where is the return? Well, you have to wait, but the return will be huge. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you put that investment in. You give it a few five, ten years, if it even takes that long, and you, and the return will be amazing, especially on that because our our profession, fire, police, uh, you know, dispatchers, nursing, all of that, that's all, that all directly impacts the community, directly. And it's all human currency. So the more powerful you, your human currency is, the better. The, the better care you're going to get. And, and no one can escape it. No one, there's no one here that, at least in the United States, uh, unless you're ext- extremely wealthy and you have a whole other uh, medical plan, you call 911, that's who you're getting, wherever you are. And unfortunately, that can change, you know, depending on where you are, the level of service, but you that's what you get. So if we can all invest better, what we get is better, no matter where we are. And hopefully, you know, a, a rising tide will raise all ships on that, where we can continually um, <clears throat> get better benefits that really matter um, for wellness. That way we can do that. And, and by wellness, I mean, you know, mental health, all of it together, mental health, physical health, nutritional health, health tracking. I think all those things, we're woefully behind on all of those things that that's a package that needs to be a like legislated federally and and statewide it needs to be a requirement for any entity to provide uh, emergency service that should just be a part of it and i i don't see how it's not really when most sources would would agree that you have a better chance of dying from a heart attack or or even just suicide alone by double than the line of duty death how much more proof do you need than that i mean if anytime there's a safety issue it's fixed like that right if if a department said um we don't have scbas people keep dying in fire from breathing smoke they like what what are you talking about we're gonna scbas tomorrow that's that's a department standard immediately because it's a safety issue why isn't suicide a safety issue? Why isn't it that kind of knee-jerk reaction? Put this wellness program in place immediately. It blows my mind. It, we, and it, I understand that, unfortunately, um, the fire department is, is reactionary in a lot of ways. But we're not even reacting, though, now. We're not even reactionary. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what we are right now to that. And there, there's many reasons. It's multifaceted. It's, it's not a simple 
uh, fix per se. It will take a lot of, it's not like you can just say, uh, tomorrow we'll have this. It, it will take footwork, but I, I definitely believe it, it, it needs to be from more of a legislative, uh, standpoint from, and that way it gives real firepower to unions, administrations, so where they can go to the cities and be like, if you really would like to continue emergency service for your city, it's now required to have this wellness program. And I think the, the footwork is there. There's plenty of people working on it. There's different cities and different initiatives that are trying to do this, but it's not enough. It needs to be more, um, more fire departments grouped together, more special interest groups put together, more power forward. And, uh, <clears throat> and we need to get that, those laws in place so that, you know, again, the unions, all these, uh, the initiatives, the um, administrations, they have the firepower to say not only are we getting a wellness system, but it's required. So it, it takes that whole thing away. And what that does, too, is that, which we talked about before, is is it also is a stigma killer because then it becomes mandatory. So if someone is, uh, and you've made this point before where you're, you mentioned that we could cut out polygraphs and psych tests and all the baloney of hiring and take that money and put it into uh, something like therapy for, or, or you know, for, for new hires to meet with, with a therapist to say, hey, this is what you're getting into. Uh, that ends that stigma because they start their career doing that at the same time if we mandate it that also ends the stigma this is kind of a funny way to put it but when when you turn 40 um and you go and get the annual physical you get the prostate checked right Mm -hmm. um firefighters don't like that very much but it's mandatory pretty much you know for your health people agree that it's important so everyone does it so even though the stigma of somebody putting a finger where it doesn't belong you know, goes away because everyone's doing it, you know, and it's the same thing can be the same thing with with wellness, with mental health. When it's when it's mandatory, it takes that stigma away in a lot of ways because everyone's doing it. They have to do it. And hopefully people would want to benefit from it if they're going, you know, they're not just going to fight it the whole time that they would actually benefit from it. But I think that we're. We're not getting away with it anymore. Um, the, the cancer has gone to the surface, so to speak, where you can't ignore suicide, right? You, you might have been able to ignore drinking. You might have been able to ignore substance abuse, although I'm, I'm not sure how, but you can't ignore suicide. And the cancer has hit the surface, and it's ugly. And we're not reacting to it, and not fast enough. And... Uh, we're at a, uh, I think, a part of a junction in, in uh, the American Fire Service where uh, we have a fork in the road where we could go one way or the other. And I, and I likened it to um, the economic crash in 2007. In 2007, there were signs that the crash was coming, right? But people were like, oh, we're, we're still going, though, you know? That's that's could be far off. There, the the signs were there, and then what happened? Two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Boom! You fall off a cliff, right? Economy collapses. I think we're there with the fire department in this way with wellness. Um, that we at one side we have this group of people that are doubling down on this idea that it's part of the job to um, have PTSD. It's part of the job to have divorce. You know, it's just all part of it. Just to man up. 
and deal with it. And, and if you see, you know, somebody that commits suicide, that's, that's part of it. Unfortunately, that's what we have to deal with. And that's just not true. That's a, another risk that we have to mitigate appropriately, just like every other risk that we face in the job. So there's a group that's doubling down on that, really. And that's the wrong way to go. We need to go the other way completely. And we need to understand that this is an issue and start facing it immediately and, and with firepower. Um, and I, I think that's why we're also at a crossroads, and this is another sign of impending doom, that the application rates have, have dropped immensely. I've, I've been hearing it across the nation, listening to podcasts, talking to other uh, departments um, in, from the outreach with my book and everything, that their applications are way down. I mean, I think when I was applying, there was thousands of applicants. Mm-hmm. People were fighting each other for these positions. Now they're not. And why is that? I think it's because generations now are, are smart. And, and they have the, the tools to understand what this job means. I didn't know what this job meant. It took me 10 years to figure it out. It took me 10 years to figure out that, hey, these calls hurt my well-being. Not just my mind, you know, but my, my physical ability. You know, that, that I'm fatigued mentally, physically, you know, and those there has to be benefits there to overcome that so when a new applicant you know is they're looking a, a young person that a newer generation um they could be looking at um, applying for a fire department applying to become a fireman right they're going to look at what it takes okay i got to do xyz i have to get all the schooling but what do i get when i get there okay so most fire depart departments you can't use cannabis products at all zero tolerance so if I have a sleeping issue, I have an issue with PTSD, something like that, I can't even use CBD to to help myself. Hmm, that's interesting. And my career's over like that. If I do, what else? Oh, I have a tattoo on my forearm. Now I'm going to have to wear a, a cover over my forearm for 30 years. With long sleeves in the Florida right. summer. In the Florida summer for 30 years. Uh, you know, uh, what else? I, I I'll probably work somewhere around 60 hours a week. Okay, maybe, maybe this doesn't sound great. I want to help people, but that sounds kind of insane, right? And that's because we're not progressing as, as a fire department. Yeah, we're not progressing. Devolved. We're devolving. Yeah, we're, yeah. We, we're stuck in the 40s or something. The, the Army has progressed past us. They're, they're changing the way they teach their drill instructors because they saw that numbers were down for applicants to the Army. So they changed. Yeah, Why are we not test. changing? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So that that's scary, really, because they're smart enough to say, hey, you know, maybe I'll do a different thing with my life. But what what's scary about that is who have we lost already? Right? What future great leaders have we already lost? Because they changed their mind then. They were smart enough to know that maybe I shouldn't do this for my own physical well being, for my mental health, for my for my family. And now they're not in a position where they could be a great leader because we never even gave them the chance, you know. So that, that's, that's something to think about with the fire department. Um, we need to start progressing that way. We need to keep up with private sector. Private sector is doing all, this, all these things, right? They, they understand that in order to get people into the door and to continue their business, they have to entice them in. It's not pandering. I mean, some, some do pander, but 
for us, it, I'm not talking about, you know, filling the firehouse full of bean bags and, and, and a free lunchbox and, you know, emotional support dogs. Although I would like that would actually support be cool. Dogs. <laughs> I got the bean bags. I'm all about the yeah. dogs. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> complain if you want to give me free lunch and, and sit me down in a bean bag and let me pet puppies. But, um, I'm not saying we got, we're going that extreme. What I'm saying is we have to progress along with private sector because we're losing them to private sector right now. And this is just the beginning. This is the incipient stage, I feel like. In the future, it will get worse and worse. And a lot of people in the fire department like to discredit newer generations because they don't have a perceived skill set. They, they never started a saw. They never did construction like we did. Okay? But they do have other strengths. It's stupid to think that they have no strengths because they're smart enough to see that what we're doing hurts us mentally. We're killing ourselves. And they don't want to do that, right? So they do have other strengths. They have uh, higher emotional IQ. They, they, uh, they have the the willingness to help their community. Well, we have to give them the tools to do that. I mean, people that go into this profession are taking on the tragedy of the community. They're shouldering that. I mean, really think about that. You know, that they're shouldering tragedy of the community. All those little things that that are you know, for, for people in the community that only affects them, they only see that one little piece of their life. You know, this, this, this happened at the dinner table, you know, grandpa or, or dad or whoever had a heart attack at, on Christmas Eve. You know, the, we see that every Christmas Eve for everybody in the community. Mm-hmm. And that's just one little thing. Car accidents. That's that's a big issue, you know, for you, and uh, it's the same thing for me because traveling, you see how hard it is to get a license anywhere else, and here you can get a, all you need to get a license in the United States is a face, so they could take a picture of it and put it on the card to hand you. <laughs> My son literally you know, just it. took his chest yesterday, yeah. so I got to see it again, and right. you know, I trained him to be a good driver, but um, you know, again, right. he, he, I was like, "What do you do?" Well, I parked into a parking spot, I backed up twenty feet, which I watched him do, and then. You know, he drove around. He's like, went around the neighborhood. Um, I think he had to do like a stop and start parking thing. Yeah. And he drove back. Yeah. So, I mean, all 16 this... years old. Yeah. All right, then <clears throat> off you go. You're ready, you're ready for I-75 yeah. in the middle of a rainstorm Scary. in Florida. Yeah. And, Knock and yourself out. all those accidents because of that. All the, all the things that we deal with, right? We shoulder that pain. Um, and, those people are seeing and understanding that because they're more well-informed than we were. And they're deciding maybe if they're not going to, you know, be able to help me through this with wellness program, with allowing me to use CBD or show a tattoo or whatever, everything's a zero tolerance. My career is over and forget that. Well then flip the other side too. And now it's okay to be obese and get hired as a firefighter. Right. Because right, you can't, yeah. God forbid that you, you know, right, you set standards and maintain them every year right. and ask your firefighters to be in shape. Yeah. It's, you know? it's multifaceted. Yeah. The whole thing. There's just, we have to um, put a lot of things aside and say, okay, let's look to the future here and we need to get the best that we can get in here. Now, I'm not saying the people that we've hired, you know, in the past how many years, weren't any good they're great you know but we we have to keep making the fire department interesting and and valuable to those in the community that 
are willing to shoulder that responsibility, right? Are willing to leave their family and to go see tragedy every fourth day, every third day, every other day, every whatever your shift is. Mm -hmm. Well, you said about the ones that we hired were great. I always say, and it's the same with people point out the kind of heavier guy that still kills it on the fire ground. It's like, yeah, beautiful. But how much better could he or she be right. if they were actually in a good place mm -hmm. health-wise as well? Right. Yeah, they're, they're amazing, you know, advancing hose and pulling ceiling. But then they have to go back to the, the station and then they take the statins and <laughs> they're, you know, you know what I mean? The yeah, beta yeah. blockers and everything. So I'm thinking about not just the fire ground, but... Right you know 10 20 30 years after they retire mm -hmm. are they oh, getting yeah. to play with their grandkids yeah so what what irks me is you know there's a lot of conversation about oh it's customer service in the firehouse well i think that's a terrible word because your kindness and compassion as a firefighter is what's important right. it's not custom they're not a customer they're a human being having their worst day and the altruistic element of first responders are uh, addressing that person and trying right, to mitigate right. it that's to me is it's not an hr issue yeah, it's a leadership issue and i talk about that in the book a lot um because as the leader you have to be an example in that you can't ask someone to do something that you're not doing if you're you know if you look like job of the hut and you you suck down a bottle before you hit the door how do you expect your crew to be any better than that you know and even in your personal life if you're a total idiot outside of work that's not beyond your crew they know that if you're on social media doing some dumb stuff that doesn't evaporate because you got into the right front seat of a truck you know they see that so you're an example all the time but there is such a thing as as tough love too like you have to say some things that are uncomfortable you have to have conversations where you know you have to use some serious tact but it's meaningful and it's appropriate and and unfortunately you know, sometimes uh, weight gain is could be a part of that where, listen, I'm this conversation is more about you helping you, you know, and this crew, because it has to do with all of us. You know, if you can't if you can barely pull your weight, literally, how, how can you know, you do you do anything for us if we need you? And, you know, there. But again, you have to be the example of that I can't be seriously overweight and tell you, hey, uh, you could probably lose a few LBs, but, you know. So, you know, that a lot of this stuff is is leadership to, to me and it's it's station level leadership. And, and that's really why I, I wrote the book um, is because that's the funnel point. That's where the rubber meets the road. Um, that's where you you get you're at that point where you're the one truly affecting the level of service, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. So. You're the one that's hitting the gas and leaving that mark where the rubber meets the road, right? It could be a little, or it could be a full of burnout, you know, it, that depends on you. And you're, you're the one that's shouldering the directives and, and the memos and the minutia from on high, right? At the ivory tower at, at admin, just to throw some jokes their way. And you're the one that has to shoulder that and make it palatable to your crew and, and make it happen. At the same time, you have to be wise enough to know everyone has a boss, right? So you can't discount what they're doing. They have a boss too, right? And they have a bosses that don't understand what we do, right? They have budgets. They have different things that they have to meet. So 
you have to be able to shoulder these things. You have to make it palatable. It takes a lot of work and it takes, and it, that comes from an inner strength. If you don't have an inner strength yourself, you need to build that first before you can lead anybody anywhere. If you can't lead yourself, you're not leading anybody anywhere. And, and people will know that they, they, you've seen it when you, you see this guy's the leader. It looks like he just rolled out of a dumpster. You know, no way. I'm not following that guy anywhere. You know, or he, the guy is, his life's a mess. He's going to come here and, and, and lead us somewhere. I don't think so. So, you know, the leadership starts with the self. It starts with trying to find your foundation, work on qualities that make you a leader. And then once you've made yourself the best it can be, it's a fight to keep it that way. And then you can reach out and say, Hey, um, this is what I'd like our crew to, to, to be able to do. Can you follow me? Right. And part of that is knowing who your informal leader is, right? Because that should be your first question. Who's my informal leader? Because as soon as you leave the room, they're going to look at them and say, what do you think about that? You know? And then once you're leading by example and you're, and you're creating that right atmosphere, all these things start to take place and respect builds and all these different things build that, that customer service, that, that internal customer service actually happens, not the, the false baloney part the actual we care about each other this is a family we're a family at this table right when we're eating we're having a good time laughing but if i say something um that kind of you know hurts a little bit it's because i love you you know as as a friend as a brother as a whatever it's because i want you to succeed and you know that right it's not because i'm trying to step on you to get to another promoted position it's none of that you know because you know me and you know my example you know what i'm doing that when I say, hey, let's try to do this, we could do this better, you'll say, that dude is trying to help me. I'm going to try to do that. Yeah. That's, that's where that strength comes from. And we need that now. That's why I use the, the word modern in the title, the modern fire officer, is <clears throat> this is not the fire department of our fathers, of our forefathers we, what we're expected to do goes beyond anything that they've ever imagined, I believe, especially in a post-9-11 world. Uh, and, and again, most of the applicants we're getting live in that world. They were born after it. Mm-hmm. But for, for one of those aspects, just what we're expected to do, right? When I first got hired, I got a, uh, like a small binder it was our EMS protocols. And I was like, Oh my God, dude, look at all this the, the medications, all these things. Now it's an EMS manual. looks like the essentials of paramedic care, mm-hmm. right? It's just the protocols. I'm like, Oh my God. You know, you trying see to orange County's um, uh, SOPs, right? It was like two yellow pages taped together. Yeah, it was yeah. ridiculous. And you're expected not only to do that, to memorize that, but to do it perfectly the first time. Right. And what does everyone have on scene? A smartphone to record to see if you even did it right so we have in a, in a world of more liability and a litigious society right we have more and more extreme i was gonna say extreme harder protocols to accomplish perfectly when everyone can record you so that's one part of our modern fire service, right? The What we're able to do. It's amazing what we're able to do, the advanced life support pre-hospital. I mean, we're, we're like a rolling hospital, rolling ER. But the stresses of that are immense, right? Now we take that and we'll plug in the next thing. We'll plug in the calls that we're running. We're running 
more and more active shooters, right? We're running more and more um, pandemic type calls where there's all these um, social pressures around um, where, you know, if you're wearing a mask, if you're not wearing a mask, if you're, there, there's all these eyes on you, you know, when, when you're, when you're running these calls, when you're, what are there? I mean, there, the there's violence, just the violence, violence, riots, uh, social pressures, like all, all these different things, all these calls that, are, you know, it's not, it's not just fires. It's all these sinking calls that, that are, have so much pressure and stress. And then you, you put on top of that, the social aspect of it where um people are at each other's throats and the pandemic did not help that made it even worse <laughs> you think <laughs> you know so what, what i mean by that is the, the social pressures that that we're dealing with is and this is my perspective and people can get mad at me or not if they want but this is my look at what's been taking place in the in the past 10 years is that the western world and we'll just say America or whatever, isn't it an identity crisis right now? They've less left Judeo-Christian values behind and the principles and all that. That was something that everyone agreed upon, essentially, that these, these were the principles and values that we agree upon. And then they had some kind of common value to fall back on. They left that. It's gone now, for better or for worse. But there was nothing to fill it. There was nothing ready. Okay, this is gone, but we're going to add this in. Now we all agree on this. That, that didn't happen. What filled that void was the self, how I personally feel. Now that's true. That's truth, how I feel. And unfortunately, humans are pretty much pretty selfish. We're, we're looking out for the self because we're it's self-preservation. And identity politics has seized that opportunity to jump in there and say, you know what, not only are you right, but if anyone disagrees with you, that's a, an act of aggression, a physical aggression. So everyone now, they have just stirred the, the pot. You know what I mean? They, they kicked the hornet's nest and everyone is, hates everyone now. And that, that's made, it's made its way into the firehouse. We're not immune to that. That's coming into the firehouse too. So the leadership in the firehouse now, we have to navigate this minefield of all that. And what does that take? You know, that takes a very strong leader take someone that's first off very self-confident but also cares about each one of his people right to mitigate those little those little issues that that form society i mean nothing was to me in, in modern times bigger than dealing with the pandemic at the station level should i you know should you get the shot or not you know should you do this or not i mean everyone has their own story you know we have maybe someone, uh, their, their family lost their family restaurant that they had for 100 years because it shut down and now it's gone. So he's, he or she is mad because of that. Another one maybe lost their grandmother right, to, to COVID or something like that. So you have to get the shot. You have to shut down things. No, no. My family lost their, their restaurant. They left whatever. You have, these are strongly held you know, opinions they make their way into the firehouse. And How they're are both we justified. This? And, this and is they're the both thing justified. Because yes. like with so many arguments, even like the obesity element, I talk a lot about our environment creates weight gain. It creates mental ill health. So you can't just demonize the fat firefighter. You have to bring in the environment. But this is the problem is the person who lost their restaurant has every reason to feel that way. The person who lost their grandmother has every reason to feel that way. And what 
leadership does is pull them all together and be like, both of you are right to feel the right. way you do. Let's find that common ground right. where overall we can mitigate losing businesses. Right. We can mitigate the health of the people who are truly vulnerable, but we can also keep everything going. Right. But what we saw from so many, especially, you know, leadership positions in, in larger, you know, government, state, etc., was division. Right. Like, oh no, you know, why don't you throw rocks at him and you throw rocks at her and then you can just basically pummel each other with right. your extreme views. Let's see who wins at the end. And then, and then we don't fix anything. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, how you deal with that as a leader is through validation. You validate each person's issue. Yes, you were justified to feel that way. But then you so respect. But you still respect each other. And, and it's easier in a healthier environment that you've already created Right. Hopefully you've created that environment before the pandemic hit, before these issues hit. That's why it's so important to start now. And it takes work, a lot of work. But not you have to validate those issues, show them how to respect and and encourage them you know, to respect each other. And it's not easy. It's very hard. It's very difficult to continue to, to keep peace that way. But it is possible. And that's all part of that that modern officer to hold all these things together and and really all these are, are just one piece each of the puzzle i mean another side of it's the mental health side in the in the book as well in the uh, silent killers chapter i talk about my bout with uh, ptsd but I, I believe that this is a leadership issue uh in the firehouse that the officer has to be the example of talking about mental illness, about using benefits that are available to you, um, and making it, making the stigma go away by being the example of sharing and caring, you know, for lack of a better term, with your firemen. Because they're going to look to you to see what you're doing. They're going to look to your informal leader to see what you're doing. You know, if someone like from a peer support team comes to the station, guess who they're looking at? To see who's going to talk first. They're going to look at you as a leader. They're going to look at the informal leader, right? Mm-hmm. Show them how you should react to to those situations because it matters. It obviously matters. People are killing themselves. So be an example. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, to your journey from that side. Obviously, this is an area that I like to discuss a lot because I think that vulnerability is important for people to hear. Just going back, though, to what you were saying, private sector versus what we're doing now, you know, we have some fire service leaders that talk about, you know, we're like a business. And and my observation is, okay, well, then I don't think we're a business. But if that's the concept that you're taking, beautiful, then don't model yourself on a sweatshop in the Philippines. Model yourself (laughs) on Google or Virgin or someone who's very progressive that understands the wellness of their employees. Need to bring Richard Branson in. Exactly. Oh, my God. He would smash it. He would totally recognize it. Um, That's one of my kind of guests to to try and get one day. But but it's true. Like, if you want to look at the business sector, and even now, as I'm sure you can imagine, this has really piqued my interest. There are a lot of progressive companies now that have gone to a four-day work week in the corporate sector. Still a nine-hour day, eight-hour day, whatever it is. But they realize that their employees were being as if not more efficient in four days getting the same amount if not work done than they were in five and then that gives those employees an extra day to be with their family so then they come back fired up invigorated and then off they go again so if we're gonna model business 
then pick the right fucking business. Right. I mean, you're much more productive when you're awake. You know, if you're sleepwalking, you're not going to get any, you know, any productivity out of anybody, you know. So, and it, the pro, the productivity you do get is not going to be very good. You know, you know, you know that uh, sleep deprivation is likened to being drunk. Mm-hmm. That's just one night, a right, single that's night, one night. Yeah. yeah. So that's scary, man. And t- to me, you know, when I'm on duty, I'm not near my home. When my family calls 911, I don't want a bunch of drunk people showing up. You know, I want someone that's got sleep, knows what they're doing, is uh, ready to go to work, you know, has their wits about them to help my family. And, uh, and if a wellness, not if, but a wellness program would ensure that better than what's being done now, you know. And so we got to get serious about um, giving firemen, police, dispatchers, nurses, all the stuff, the right tools to be able to do their job correctly because it impacts us directly. This is not like years down the line. This is the next time someone calls 911. Yeah. You know? I just interviewed Carly Wopat, who was a, or still is, a high-level volleyball player, first indoor, then beach. Um, but she had a couple of injuries that had taken her away from beach volleyball specifically and so she got into the obstacle racing and um i forget they call it now but decafit and all those ones the the kind of hybrid fitness competitions and she's literally one of the fittest women on planet earth but she had an interesting view because she went into the fire service just only like when during covid basically which is an interesting thing it's the worst time ever. yeah but also ironically their their fire academy burned down one of the first days that they were in, in fire academy. So they had to mitigate new tools and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, um, so, but coming from a, an athlete's position, her whole thing was I had to step away again because I couldn't function as an athlete with the lack of sleep we were getting. And it was, it was LA. So again, 56 hour work week. Um, and she was just like, I had to choose. I can go back to the fire service. I love the fire service. I'm sure she'll probably find one that's got a better work schedule. Um, but at this point, if I want to be an athlete, I need to use my younger years. I can't be doing this no sleep business. But the thing is, and we talked about this, if you and I are asked to go 28 stories up the hotel that was right next to where I used to work in my last apartment with a high rise strip, which would be a hundred pounds worth of gear all in 28 floors up. And then we start fighting fire and then we start doing searches. Then maybe we pull them into the stairway and perform, you know, mega code. Wouldn't you want those people to be able to operate at the highest level? Why is it that, you know, Jared wakes up at three in the morning and is asked to do all those things and we're okay with him working 56 or you're obviously 42, but a lot of people around the country, 56, 80 hours a week. When you're athletes, I mean, there's no way Drew Brees is going to be like, yeah, I won't sleep every third day. We'll be fine. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we won't. And we know that. So this is the thing. Every level that you look at, whether it's, you know, like you said, all the way down to the ability to hire, but physical performance, mental performance, likelihood of injury, likelihood of mental health challenges, cancer, heart disease, obesity, autoimmune disease, it's everything, everything. And I've had 800 plus episodes now, and they've, you know, so much cross-pollination from all kinds of industries going, you guys have lost your fucking mind. I don't know how you got there, but what the fuck are you doing? You are going to get hurt. You are going to gain weight. You are going to have heart disease. You are more likely to get cancer. And the mental health side, don't even let me begin. It's just about not progressing. You know, like when we're instituting fire departments, 
Okay, yeah, you get out there, do that. Well, papers are coming out, right? Statistics, research. Hey, if you do these things, this is going to hurt you. If you don't do these things, this will hurt you, whatever it is. And we looked at it and said, eh, throw it away. So we just ignored all the research, all these things coming out when when a new truth came and and said, hey, this this will help you do this. Like, no, we we do the fire department this way. Sorry. And, uh, you know, we're getting confused what tradition and history is, you know, with that. I think you've mentioned that a few times in some of your podcasts, mm-hmm. tradition and history. Like, the, what's uh, the difference? What should we venerate and what should we leave behind and then think of fondly? Absolutely. And this is the thing, you know, with the fire helmet. And I know uh, Jeremy Dons just put his <laughs> spin on it in our conversation <laughs> on his social media post. But... It is, and I don't give a fuck about, you know, oh, you don't like me because I'm not beating my chest about pistol grips and leather helmets, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. You just go ahead and get your cancer and, you know, carry on. But for me, it represents the inability to progress. It's not about right. what it is, right. but, um, you know, if it's leather and it absorbs all the carcinogens, and I worked in the West Coast and the smaller helmets there, so much better. And that's just a same kind of helmet, but smaller. Right. Still work great. Still had things fall on my head. You know, it's, it's a great helmet, but, but it's that. It's that, you know, I care more about how I look because I'm an American firefighter than progressing and finding more innovative ways, you know, and it's the same with mental health. Well, we've always been fine. I did it. Now these young guys should do it. Just because you did it, just because in 1930, that was the most progressive right. helmet doesn't mean that almost a hundred years later, you, it's okay to go should we be doing something better, you know, and, and ask yourself, am I more worried about how I look than the ability to save the, the technology that would be in this helmet? The fact that it's not going to get knocked off my head when something hits the rim or right. I can't look up because it hits my tank, all these things. It's, I'm, I'm out of the fire suit. I don't give a shit what anyone wears, but I'm certainly going to point out the ridiculousness of that mentality. And then especially then when you ridicule other countries that have advanced and making them seem like, they're stupid because they look like space people. Right. Like if you're saying that, you really need to look in the fucking mirror and reevaluate <laughs> your burning desire to serve. Yeah. Because to me, you're worried about how you look. And that's not for them, air quotes. That's for you. Right. No, I agree. I mean, we have to be willing to, to change, and but change for the right reasons. You know, we've got to be willing to look at truth, look at research, look at, you know, whatever it takes and say, okay, I was wrong. It, this obviously doesn't work. I mean, one of the things for me when, when I was getting into the fire service and learning at the fire academy, you know, they always teach you, you got to come from the unburned side. You have to, the fire could run into the house. And I'm thinking to myself, is the fire going to run into a house? What are you talking about? You know, when I, whenever I put a bucket of water on a campfire, I didn't run off into the woods, <laughs> you know? And then now it's, we got to hit it hard from the yard. You know, you got to darken it down from the outside before you go in. It's like, yeah, that makes a little bit more sense, you know? So as it's just, it's a funny thing, you know, departments are number one, they're silos. No one ever talks to each other. I mean, during the pandemic, the neighboring department could have cured COVID. We would never know because we don't talk to them, you know? So that's part of it is a communication issue. But at the same time, like when research comes out, just listen to it. Somebody did the footwork in because I know 
pretty much a lot of the fire guys I know, they're not doing any footwork on other stuff than watching YouTube, you know? So there, there is a bit of that uh, inbredness to it as well, where we're continually kicking this idea down the line when at some point someone's got to stop kicking it and say, okay, what are we doing here? What is this? You know, like, why are we washing the wheels of this fire apparatus every time it comes in the bay? Why did we ever do that? Do we still need to do that? You know, so there's that that part to it. But it that takes strong, courageous leisures to do that because they have to be the one to stand up and take the punches and say, you're going to beat me up. You know, I'm going to get beat up this year on the budget. I'm going to get beat up by the all the line members, whatever. But the research shows that this is what is going to help. And, you know, down the line, begrudgingly or not, people will say that was the best thing we've ever done because you made a change and it helped on the flip side if it doesn't you're trying to be progressive you're trying to get better and you can check it off and go that wasn't the right way yeah that wasn't it you know i think the biggest problem that i see is like i said the 1930s through till you know arguably almost the turn of the century the the helmet for example hadn't changed very much technology technology hasn't changed and it was still working, but I think there's a point where everything right. ceases to be as 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 uh, effective as something else. So it's not saying, oh, that was always stupid. It's like, okay, we've had that for X amount of time. Now it's time to go forward. Right. And like I said to Jeremy, you know, if you if you're all in with the helmet, then why aren't you wearing you know three quarter length boots and a woolen tunic and the wear pack? That's tradition, mm-hmm. unless it's not, because you realize you were getting burned, so you create a bunker gear. You right. were searching, you know, scorching your lungs and dying of emphysema, so you created the air pack. It's okay. The people, the heroes ahead of us that, you know, suck smoke through their beards and mustaches, mm-hmm. absolutely phenomenal. But then we saw those people dying, and we weren't able to get as close to some of the victims. And obviously, you know, our, our fires are so different now. Right. But it's not saying, oh, you were wrong. It's just like drawing in the line in the sand and going, that worked from 19 this to 2000 and this, and then we move forward. And it's the same with the mental health. Right. Well, there's the a reason so- why people aren't commuting in a Model T. Yeah, exactly. And then the Navy SEALs don't wear tin helmets. Right. You know, would they want to go into Afghanistan with no nods and no, you know, no um, ballistic protection or anything right. else? Just, you know, World War II trench uniform? No, of course they wouldn't. So, but it's the same, like you said, with even the work week. Right. It's you know? a prevalent ideal, really, mm-hmm. is, is that aversion to change. And it's a human condition. Yeah. So it's not, it's not anything that the fire department has on lockdown. It, it's just a human condition. But again, it's a, to me, it's a leadership issue. It's a, we, we have to get trained people to be the leader, to, to be the one that has the courage to do it. And uh, we have to start now because we're already behind. And, and we have to make changes aside from that, too, to bring in people that will affect those, those changes, too. And we have to do that by accepting that generations are different than us, and they always have been. Every generation is different, and that we need them, and so that we're going to have to meet them halfway, at least. And then anything that's a safety issue needs to be fixed immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, even the romanticization of previous generations, I believe, like everyone else, World War II, greatest generation in the world. And, and you know, they came back, ticker tape parades, rolled up their sleeves, and they rebuilt America. 
and then you do 800 plus episodes and usually granddad or sometimes dad was a world war ii veteran and then you're like oh i don't think these veterans actually did very well at all number of granddads that were drunks that were abusive that whatever and again not criticizing the individual this unaddressed trauma that filtered through and it became a generational trauma you look back and like they were the greatest generation that's not removing that at all but there was at a cost that they came back to an environment that very few were able to process so we look back and go oh yeah the smoke eaters the war years and everything a lot of those men at that time would look fast forward and go, man, I wish we had that back then. I wouldn't have lost, you know, Steve and John and whoever, you know. So this is the thing. We can't look back and be like, oh, that's when it was the best. Like you said, every generation is different. And our firefighter paramedics in America are getting their freaking asses handed to them 24 hours a day. That was not what firehouses in 1960s looked like. It wasn't. So it's different. They had different dangers. They had different core loads in certain areas. The Bronx, Brooklyn, you know, in the war years were getting their asses handed to them with physical work and fires. But the modern firefighter is an unending 24, 48-hour, like you said. No, they never see the station. No. They, they jump on the truck. As soon as it comes back, the shift change, they kick back out, and they never see it again. They're eating like, hospital sandwiches, bologna sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And smuckers, and, snackables. Yeah, and, and energy <laughs> drinks. For 24 hours, you know, their their pancreases are screaming from all the God knows what that's in those drinks. They're they're turned into a zombie because now they're, they want to sleep, but they can't. They get off duty, and then two days later, they got to do it again. Well, you mentioned Chapter 9. I think one of the, the most amazing things, and you talk about the, the, the courage to address change. I mean, obviously, the, the, the helmet thing, you know, again, if, if people are going to, dislike the conversation then good i mean i've been in this position for a long time but seven years ago people didn't want to hear about the mental health you know people didn't want to hear about questioning the war on drugs you know and and these things and now here we are seven years you know psychedelics all these things are suddenly a a big part of the conversation cbd seven years ago oh it's it's weed here we are now so but you get a good fucking kick in at the beginning you know so um but anyway my point being the mental health vulnerability and courage in the storytelling these days is amazing and you put that in your book yourself so walk me through your career you know where when you look back now where that kind of began that kind of um, layering of trauma and then you know where was the darkest place that you it took you to and then how were you able to navigate out of that well you know when when you first at least you know 16 years ago for me when when I first got hired PTSD was not, I didn't even barely know what that was. You know, that's not even on your mind. Um, and it definitely wasn't when you got hired, there was no class on it. There was no, hey, watch out for these things. Now, you know, so you're you're younger, you're, you're looking for adrenaline. You know, you're an adrenaline junkie. A lot of, I mean, let's face it, a lot of firemen are nuts. You know, that's what makes them so fun. And so they're the ones running into a burning building and doing all this stuff, right? So um you know we're we're looking for adrenaline we're you know the brotherhood and all that um and i and i think it's not till later when you're a little and and everyone's different so it might affect someone sooner or later for me it was about the 10-year mark you know i wasn't thinking about that at all i had my truths right that um i didn't start i didn't make this mess i'm only here to fix it you know that's one of the truths that we tell ourselves 
not my emergency. I'm just here to fix it. You know, all I can do is good. You know, um, I didn't have a lot of uh, guilt or anything. Like there wasn't calls where I was like, oh man, I, I killed that person. You know, I, I did this. This is because I didn't follow the protocol. We have very strong uh, crews at, in Boca. We have very good medical uh, care and uh, we watch out for each other. So, I mean, it, it would have to be pretty bad if all of us missed something. So, you know what I mean? If there, there wasn't a lot of reason for me to, to say, to be uh, guilty or have this, this, you know, stress. But the thing is, if through vicarious, um, you know, trauma and all the, all these things, you're, you're holding this weight. You know, you're, you have a certain size bucket for everyone. It's different. And for every time we see those things, we put something into that, a pebble, whatever it is. Sometimes it's a stone. Sometimes it's a boulder. And at some point it's filled. And most of the time it's overfilled. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really understand that till it happened to me, you know, and, and I was in, I was in a leadership role at the time. I was, I was a captain at the time. So I'm into my career and I just started to become angry and I'm not an angry person. Like I'm half dead half the time. People <laughs> joke cause they're like, dude, are you even alive right now? Uh, when I first got hired, funny enough, they thought I was high cause I was so relaxed. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but I started becoming aggressive, kind of. Uh, I I was, you know, snappy, like just unhappy and different. And finally, my wife was pulled me aside. She's like, "What's wrong with you?" And you know that immediately you're defensive. Like, "What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. And at the time, I got a lot of stuff going on. We we have two little kids. We you know there were one and, and three or four and. So it's, I'm not sleeping at work. I'm not sleeping at home. Not well. You know, luckily, we have a situation where my wife could be a stay-at-home mom, so she could try to let me sleep before shift. You know, I, I could put in earplugs and get sleep before I go on to duty because I'm responsible for people's lives. You know, so she worked with me. But, you know, there's fatigue still there. So, you know, I'm thinking, hey, life is tough right now. You know, we're dealing, we got two little kids. We're trying to make ends meet. You know, we're... Uh, I got things going on at work. I'm trying to, you know, make my crew better. I'm trying, I'm trying to be better. You know, of course uh, I'm kind of on edge, but it'll go away. You know, this is just part of life, but it became apparent it wasn't going away. And, and really what, what she taught me was that you have to be plugged in to know, right? She knew because she loves me or she has a vested interest in me. So when I went off baseline, she knew what's wrong with you. Something is not right. And thankfully, I listened to her. Like the guard came down and I thought about it and I said, something is wrong. Sorry. Now my wife's going to make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> but you always break point. up. You're such a wimp. <laughs> no, that's she's, the very she's nice. opposite. She's nice. <laughs> So I had to come to terms, you know, with some stuff going on in my life. And it was hard to do because, you know, you're thinking, um, why can't I deal with this? You know, I'm sorry. This is the raw emotion that's behind these, though. You don't need to apologize. I mean, this is this is the opposite of this fake stoicism where I'm fine. This the moment we actually let that guard down. 
this is what's actually going on behind. I actually cried like this when I uh, got promoted to captain. Everyone was like, oh, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, all right, let me get myself back. Take, like anyway. I said, take your time. So I had to do some soul searching, you know, and think to myself, okay, what is it? You know, and, and she said, it's, you, you have PTSD. To her, it was clear. I mean, she's, she's smart. She's got, she's, uh, um, have some, you know, I think two bachelor degrees. Um, so she's no dummy. So she knew what it was right away. And to me, I'm like, PTSD. I've been on the department for 10 years. How do I have PTSD? You know, these guys, they're 30 years there and they're fine, you know? So it can't, it can't be that. And then the more I thought about it, it's like, you know what? It's true. I'm holding on to these things, you know, and it took a long time to figure out what it was. And I think for everybody, it's different. Um, some sometimes it is like a it's a guilt that you know I did something wrong I I made that you know I could have done something better but for me it wasn't that at all it was a guilt weirdly enough like when I finally figured out she was gracious enough to work with me through this this whole thing because that was not fun to be around you know and you know just um like most people do when I was at work I put on a happy face because that's that was my role as an officer, you can't come in depressed. You can't come in and act and, and start crapping on people, you know, not if you want to get good work out of them. That is, that's not how it works. So when I finally figured it out, it was this guilt of being the one that was with someone when they died and not their loved one. That's what was eating me up. And it's, it, I don't know if I'm exp- explaining it right, but it's just... I don't know. Well, you, well, you are. I, mean, I know we talked about this before, you know, when we spoke a few weeks ago, but there's a, I think a, a misnomer that what haunts us is the tragedy itself. The per, you know, the mutilated person in the car or the, you know, burned up body that we pull out. But to me, those aren't the things that I see and hear. I hear the voices of the loved ones screaming. Like I remember it was a right. shooting in Anaheim at a park and this kid was 15 and I went I was the one that put the yellow sheet over him and the moment I did I mean this just chorus of wails but the irony was that dark humor mm-hmm. at the time I was like if I pull the sheet off will they stop and then I put it back on they start and then you can have like a little jam session with this guy <laughs> right. I mean totally you know inappropriate but that was a, again immediately me trying to find humor because right. it was so uncomfortable mm-hmm. another one i had was doing uh had a guy literally just drop dead in uh in a a kennel and you know, dropping his dog off and he just had a, it ended up being a bleed and he just stopped mm-hmm. the code went as well as any code have ever been and he still died and then my report i had to write and literally the family are where that couch is 10 feet away and i'm there listening to the as they're being notified of the death and everything that is why because and then you have that inability to save and i've spoken about this a lot as in 14 years in the fire service i never had a code save i know that i'm an anomaly you are an anomaly man so again i mean not that you save every code far far from it but that is an anomaly so but so i what i mean is i can understand how you feel because there's that what did i do wrong And, and i look back and go you know i had the gi bleeds and the brain bleeds and you know, all these, these deaths and then had a lot of obviously pre-code saves and, and other things, but it's, it's that 
like you said, I can think of one. It was a, I wasn't the lead medic, but it was um, a, a code. We got him back. We ended up putting the pacer on. My engineer, who was the medic, the guy was complaining about the pacer. So he, was, he turned it off and I was like, fuck. And I wasn't a medic at the time either, but I was wanting to be a medic. I was doing all the studying. Um, and uh, the lady closed the doors and then he tried to get the pacer back on again, lost, lost capture, capture and that was went it. into yeah to yeah. VFib. And so our faces were the last right. thing that dude ever saw. Yeah. And do you think that haunts me? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's about. like the pleading. You can see it in their eyes. It's like a pleading, you know, when they can't talk because they're gurgling or they're whatever, you know, is wrong with them. It's just like something that is like haunting, you know. But in, in the book, again, I talk about... Um, it's it's not about the seeing it it's about the feeling it it's about the smell it's about the you know all the senses that you you take the those things in and that's the memory of it it's it's not just that you saw it because some some people they're like oh i saw the you know this picture or whatever on on the computer sorry buddy that ain't nothing like it when (laughs) when you're when you're in it and you have it on you and and you feel it yeah. You know, I yeah. had um, a drunk driver. It was three gay women, and she was there. She came off the side of the freeway, rolled the car. One was crushed immediately in the car. I worked the one who was ejected, and then the other one. I don't know if she was ejected. She must have been ejected as well. Driver, she was fine and sobbing and everything. And then, like you said, while they're working with her, I was the lone guy. Yeah responding to this woman who was staring at me pleading gurgling and i watched it die you know and it's just yeah and it's you can't you can't describe that the smell of you know the the dust from the airbags the leaking petrol Mm -hmm. you know i mean all that's the sound of the traffic the wailing in the background you know the the first one that you saw that was crushed into the fucking wheel well or the the foot well i mean that's that's a, a fun macabre encyclopedia of horrors that first responders around the world like you said shoulder so that that community doesn't have to see it right we got to give these people the tools to deal with it you know and i mean that's really the i would i would say the main push of your podcast you know and and getting away from the stigma of being able to share you know Unfortunately, I'd be the first one to start crying like an idiot. No, but that's the thing. But, I mean, if I, I mean, there's so many people that have, have cried on this podcast. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, if I, if it was reversed and I was there and I was talking, I mean, I, I'll tell you a perfect example. Yesterday was my son's birthday. I made a collage for social media of, you know, from birth to where he is now at 16. And I was sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> so I, yeah. I have it, you know, and this, this is how human beings are. And yeah. sometimes we, we cry because we're proud and we miss those days. And, you know, we realize that two years from now, our kid's going to be off to college or we're crying because we're remembering something horrible or we're grieving a divorce or whatever it is. But that's what fucking people do, you know, and it's this facade of masculinity, this facade of stoicism when applied inappropriately is what's putting so many of our men and women in the ground. Right, yeah, and, and uh, I kind of have a saying about that for, for leadership is where you have to have the confidence and courage to be honest and vulnerable. Absolutely. And that's exactly what it takes, confidence and courage, to be able to do that. Because 
Um, when, when you're able to be vulnerable, you're, you're not worried about what's coming back if you have that confidence, right? If someone doesn't like it, oh well. I'm confident in myself and how I feel. I have the courage to show it, right? And that courage is, is more, is, is about you, right? That you have it, but it's, it's more about for that other person too, to show that they can have it. Yeah. Well, one thing I always point to, because I mean, you know, we're, I'm older than you, but we're similar, you know, times, um, you know, we were raised on a lot of these facades of masculinity. I mean, masculinity is, is an important thing. And I'm, when people say toxic masculinity, I think of it as how men are told a man is right. 20, 30 yeah. That's toxic. You know, being, holding a door isn't toxic. That's just right. being kind, right. whatever yeah. your gender. But you look at Band of Brothers, some, arguably some of the most heroic warriors America's ever known, and watch the real men of Easy Company talking at the beginning and the end of each episode. They are in tears. That's, that's, so you, you, you're not a pussy when you fucking cry. Right. That's what real men and real women do. Now you get a paper cut, you burst into tears. Maybe you need to do a little soul searching. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, if you're talking about things, you know, or even if you're crying for something like a paper cut, then you probably have got stuff going on that you haven't addressed. But this is, you know, we, when we're born, we cry. This is a normal, natural human emotion. And the fact that we're told to suppress it, and then you have a, a, a profession where we're so good at putting on the mask of, you know, of I'm doing okay, because as you said, you can't walk into a fire station or a full arrest or a structure fire and be like, oh my God, you know, you have to have this. Yeah, you this you gotta facade. be ready to work, you gotta put it away. Exactly. That's, that's the, the heart of the, the yin and yang. But then after, you have to give yourself the kindness and compassion that you give to so many other people in uniform. Yeah, that, that's the self-care side. You now we have to figure out what that is for you, you know, to be able to deal with those things. Because you can't, and I, I, tell, I tell this to like my younger firemen, you, you can't go through the five stages of death for every, everyone that you see. It's impossible. You, you cannot do that. You will not make it. So there will be repressed feelings, um, but you have to do self-care more than enough to deal with, with those things. I used to think that the firehouse was kind of like a yin and yang, right? Where um, there had to be, like for all the bad stuff, there had to be just enough good stuff, right, to overcome it. So, if the, you know, you're whatever hard times of the fire hard calls training was hard all these things are hard like it's not fun right you had to have enough fun stuff on the other side right like we're gonna play pickleball together we're gonna on, on our off-duty day we're gonna go do something fun escape from the room or something i don't know go gator hunting that's a we've done before <laughs> florida man dot 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 you know so but i've come to realize that it's not a yin and yang there has to be more good it cannot be. There's no balance there. It's not balanced. There so has think to be about, more good to overcome the bad. I agree with you 100%. Sorry to step over you then. Um, but then when I think, and I, this is after I transition out, so I've got to look at this from the outside looking in. But then I think of going back to Sicilian upbringing, you know, the, the good firehouse, like Anaheim, for example, we always had so many meals around the firehouse table. It was so healing. And then you take that perfect analogy that you just gave 
but now the crews aren't allowed to eat, eat around each other because of COVID and you all got to wear masks. So you can't see facial expressions and you can't play sports together at the moment. You've just destroyed the good part of your analogy then and all you've left is the bad and you've added extra stress and you know like i had la firefighter that was seeing a lot of death from covid so you've got that that dark side is now doubled and you've you've halved the good side coping mechanism yeah and that's that's where that leadership is so important so i keep harping on that you know and and hopefully having the the privilege of having a healthy firehouse before that takes place um, because then you have an advantage um, in dealing with those situations um, if not you still got to do it you know you still got to make make your way through it and and really that comes down to empathy all of it I talk about that a lot in the book understanding that empathy and for a leader to, to show it too, but to also understand it from those that are above you. Cause I, I, you know, um, we all went through it. Those that were, you know, in career positions, wh- whatever they may be, fire department, police, whatever it is, we just went through that. Right. So for, for me, we got those same things. I'm in a leadership role over the fire department. I'm trying to keep my crew healthy in this time where people are trying to tear each other apart. We're getting memos that are telling us we can't shake hands, we can't hug, we can't sit at the same table together, we have to stay in our bunks, right? When when you read this, it is total nonsense, literally. It, I mean, th- th- it's impossible for that to happen at a firehouse, yeah. right? We're, we're cooking, we're in the truck together. We're not responding in separate suppression apparatus to the, <laughs> to the fire, to the what car accident. We'll go you know? POV to a it's, structure fire. Right. It's, that's not possible, right? So how do you lead in that situation, right? Well, you have to show your firemen that to have empathy for those that are making those rules, right? The world was going crazy. How do we know? There was direction lines on the floor at Publix or at the grocery store. You could only go this way. If you went this way down the aisle, you don't get COVID, apparently, right? That's when we, the collective has lost it, right? Yeah. We're making our way through this this new scary world. Well, so is everyone else, right? So, so is admin. So is uh, their bosses, right? So you have to show them, listen, look, Admin is getting these directives from from the city, right? The city also has what? Garbage men. They have uh, street cleaners. They have whoever, right? The, the, they work at the water utilities plant. They work at XYZ. All of them have to wear masks at their office. They can easily eat a, away from each other, right? They can do all these things. It's no problem. This is just a, a, a directive to everybody. They don't understand what we do. Right. So when they tell admin, you have to do this or we'll fire you. That's that's the new policy. Admin has to then send that down the chain. Right. Try to to educate them on that's not really what they do there. But we're you know, we'll direct that message. So we have to have empathy for that and to understand what that is. Right. At the same time that now on the city side, what was social media doing at that time? If they've caught someone without a mask, heresy. heresy, right? So the city's thinking, we if we get one of our firemen, right, they're out here without a mask. Someone walks into a firehouse and sees these guys at a table with no mask on, it, it'll make national 
maybe international news. That's what they're thinking, right? So as a leader, you have to think like everybody. You have to think like your bosses. You have to think like their bosses and their bosses, this is the community. You have to think like your firemen, and you have to show them that how, how we're going to get through this and to have some empathy for it all. Um, and sometimes you have to break some rules. You know, I did. <laughs> I won't say which ones. <laughs> but but that's just how it works sometimes, you know, for the better good. Because if you do do certain things, that, that could get somebody hurt. And I think, and I believe in my heart, some of those things would have hurt more than it would have helped. But at the same time, you have to understand why. And you have to help your firemen understand why. And you have to help them to understand how to respect you and how to respect those that are above you. Otherwise, you'll get nowhere. I love that way of thinking as well, especially with the word empathy, because it's become more and more apparent to me. And we don't really think about this you know, in, in normal conversation that when we focus, for example, on mental health, that goes all the way up the chain. Just because you're a millionaire or the president of the United States doesn't mean that you're, right. you know, in, in great mental health. And as, you know, as I pointed out, you're the head of Purdue and you're creating Oxycontin and you're sleeping at night and you're worried about your money knowing that tens of thousands of people are dying. Arguably, that's a mental health issue too. Mm-hmm. So the way that we allow that to continue is we, we call them they and we call us us. And we go to each side of the field and we get in our ditches and we throw grenades at each other. But by creating empathy and as many of people in between those two that still are of sound mind, the the more collective us becomes, the more chance you have of solving the problem. But the most destructive thing that I've seen, and you know, unions are a perfect example, is you know, oh, it's you know, it's admin, it's them, it's them, it's them. I'm not picking on unions, but just, you know, that's usually how the conversation goes. And you end up with what I've seen in my career sometimes, where a simple contract negotiation takes two years for a room full of fucking grown-ups to make a decision mm-hmm. on X, Y, and Z. Yeah, you're at impasse on your yeah. contract. Like a fucking kindergarten when little Johnny wants to play with Sarah's ball and she yeah. won't let him. It's, yeah. it's fucking embarrassing. Yeah. So the more that, as you said, the empathy, the more we realize and acknowledge Yes, you know, you have these challenges, we have these challenges, let's meet in the middle, right. then I think that's a, that's a beautiful right. perspective. And that, that's the humility part too, um, where you have to be able to say, okay, I was wrong. All right, call a spade a spade. It is what this, that was, you're right, and I was wrong, you know, and, and really people don't understand that you get more respect that way. You really do. It's not the other way around. It's not doubling down on, on stupidity. No one respects that. No. That's stupid. So it's it's coming to center, right? It's it's using that empathy, but it's also being able to have uh, enough confidence and humility to, to to either say you're right, I'm wrong on both sides. Okay, yeah, that didn't work. Obviously, didn't work. Let's let's distance ourselves from that method. Try a new one. And and then that goes into power empowerment. Right, trust and empowerment, where you could go to someone and say, "You're good at that. Tell me how to do it better. Show me how to do it better." I mean, I do that all the time at work. I'm not the best at everything, by far. I'm definitely not the strongest, right? But 
I go to someone that is. If I want great, uh, you know, advice on the economy, I, I'll go to Warren Buffett. You know, I'm not going to go to a homeless guy. You know, type thing. I, I know, know where to get good advice. You know, no matter how great you are, and you have to use that to your advantage. And as a leader, what that means is you have to know the strengths and weaknesses of, of your employees and then use them, right? For whatever they are. And and most, I'm not the strongest. I just know who is. And then I trust them to do it. And then whatever their weakness is, if I have that same weakness, I'm going to say, let's do this together and we'll make ourselves better. Or I'll do, I'll fix me first and then go to them and say, hey, let's do this together. Um, but that's really what span of control is. When, when you see that in, in like a book, right, in an officer book, five to seven, you know, some, some officer, I don't know, 1920 was like, the span of control is five to seven people, you know. And, As he cracks <laughs> his pipe in his right, teeth. Right, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the smoking chair in front of a library of books, right? But, but no one really understands why. It's just like we pulled that out of nowhere. I'll tell you why. Okay, because it's hard to know, to really know more than five to seven people. That's why. And if you're going to lead somebody or a group of people, you better know them very well. Their strengths, their weaknesses, their their history, their upbringing, what makes them tick, what makes them stop. Right. That's why it's five to seven. Not because of delegation power. You can delegate an army. It's not about that, about the numbers. It's about knowing them to be able to lead them. That's what it means. And then you limit your group to that amount so that they can each have five to seven people that they really know and then they can trust and empower to do things. And that's how you have a healthy department. That's how you have a healthy crew. Yeah. I mean, humility is huge. I mean, you said trust and empower. You know, I look at the good leaders in my career versus the poor ones. And, you know, I know that term micromanaging is kind of overused, but it's true. Yep. Like I know people and it was always fragile egos. It's because oh, they, yeah. they knew they didn't know what they were talking about, yeah. especially my last place that, you know, for a good reason, the fire prevention was so good, they never really had any fires. So when it came to understanding the potential threats, they were just, I mean, right. just clueless. Yeah. But the ego was so fragile they wouldn't empower a lot of the good firefighters, especially that came from different departments that did. And even they'd have fire chiefs come to, you know, to run their right. department. And when they realized that they were actually telling them, this is what we need to do, they would fire them. Yeah. We don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, we, we're already, we're good. We don't want to talk about target hazards and terrorism and stuff. So yeah. when I see a micromanager, I see someone scared. That's what they are. They're, they're scared because they're out of their their element they're they're not smart enough they're not talented enough they're not skilled enough usually to be in that position so what they do to make up for that is they try to control everything that they can so they can push things into the the only way they know how to do something if if i make you do it exactly this way i know that way works i don't know pretty much anything else i just know this way works so i'm going to force you to do that so i know that i can try to be successful so that's what that's what I see when I see a micromanager, someone scared, someone that's out of their element, that's not that's not ready. Yeah, yeah. I know Anaheim for a perfect example. They trained us really well in the academy, um, and then they had the bar set extremely high. They would get rid of usually twenty, 20 about twenty five percent of us would get cut by the time it got to the year. And it wasn't to deliberately cut. It was just that's roughly how many people wouldn't be able to make the cut. 
Um, and then you know, that's the end of your first year and then you go through, but people have been through that pipeline are now engineers and, and captains and, and BCs. And it would be a case of, because we were so well-trained and we'd, we'd gone through this crucible, you know, the, the captain would turn around and say, all right, lay the bundles. That's an entire orchestrated evolution, but that's all you want. And the BC, the good ones would be like, you know, my, my captain, Terry, that was on the truck. All right, you know, what do you need? Okay, yeah, go over there and take the roof. And that was it. Yeah. That's all that needs to be said. None of this radio chat, no monologue. But conversely, the micromanager I saw in the last place, you know, like you said, this is how you do it because I read it in the IFSTA book 12 years ago. And, you know, it's just now you're not allowing these professionals to actually do their job. Right. And so that creates terrible morale. And then there's this downward spiral. It kills spiral. morale and it stops everyone from knowing their job. You know, and it, and it stops you from learning. Uh, you're not going to learn anything new if you force everyone to do it your way. I mean, most of the things that I've learned that I employ, I didn't, I didn't make up. I learned it from somebody else. I let them do their thing. And then I was like, whoa, that, that worked good. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start doing that from now on. And I'll tell them like, dude, you, you nailed it, man. That's awesome. I'm going to do it from that way from now on. But you'll never know if you just don't let, allow people to do their thing. Everyone is at the fire department for a reason, right? From from the chief to the the guy that just got hired. They're there for a reason. They pass tests. They're smart enough to be there. They got something to add. So get over yourself and see what it is that they, they're bringing to the table. And everyone really in, in the best system should know everyone else's job. You know, a, a step up, what we, what we call step up. So someone that can fulfill the role of a promoted position above them. Uh, that makes the best firefighter because you know what it's like to be in that role at that point. So if you're a driver and you step up for the day to become a captain, there's a vacancy. All of a sudden, hey, things are looking a little different. Now I know why he'd like me to park here. Now I know why, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever. And the same thing all the way up the chain and all the way back down the chain. If we can open that door instead of close it with micromanagement, we can empower people to do these things. That it's an investment that the return will be amazing, not just on morale, because now people can do what they're trained to do and feel good about the product that they that they've created. But they'll have empathy for those positions above and below them. They'll see what it really is like, right? That okay, you're not evil, <laughs> you know. You're just trying to get the job done with what you have, you know. And now I understand that, and and then. When that's communicated with others, you know, now, now we have a family. Constant, constantly look at the, the fire department as a family. We're a family, like it or not, you know. Um, and in, in every family, there's some family members that you don't really like that much. And there's some that you love, but they're all your family. So get over it and, and get along and figure it out. Because they're your family for the next 30 years at least, usually. You know, hopefully if you want to have your career extend that long or whatever it is and enjoy it, enjoy the ride, you know, and don't burn bridges. You don't have the luxury to do that. This is like a, a world where you every show is some stupid revenge show right on TV. Everything is uh, tell that guy off and I told him off and I'm the better guy and all this crap. Forget that junk. That is total stupidity for the weak minded. 
You mean okay. when you go in and there's a bar that's struggling and they're waiting and I'm like, you need to fucking clean the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that that's all it nothing. took and then everything was yeah. successful. Bring, we just clean, needed a guy perfect, that was yeah. on steroids that was one beat away from a heart attack to yeah. show up and, right. and just shout at you. All right, got it. But in, but in the firehouse, you don't have that luxury to burn any bridges, okay? In fact, you better become a, build, a, a bridge builder instead. Even if someone's not building their side to you, you still got to make it to them, you know, especially in a leadership role. So, you know, get over it, get over yourself, figure it out. But, you know, it's all about about that crew. If, if, if you have a crew that, um, you know, leaves the fire station with a smile, the amount of work and what they'll be able to accomplish, is, it'll be second to none. I don't care how skilled or not they are. You could have the most skilled fireman there ever was, most skilled uh, police officer, most skilled nurse, most skilled dispatcher. But if they hate their job, they're going to suck at it. They're, they're going to be terrible. I'd much rather have day one probie with the best attitude knows not a thing than the 30-year vet knows everything with a crappy attitude. Hands down. Well, I mean, one truth through most of my career is arguably the best firefighters I've ever worked with have been in the most brutal stations as far as the, the workload. And I think when I look back there was the least opportunity to micromanage those crews because they were just always out working. Mm. And so yep. not only were they getting the reps and becoming better and really having to lean on each other because they were tired and they yep. were seeing some really horrible shit, but you know the, the quiet stations is when you get the shift wars and all that stuff. Well, the chief could show up at these stations I'm talking about well, show up all you want. We're not going to fucking be there. <laughs> you can meddle yeah. and get your ticket right. out to see if we use the or TV. Or you can ride with us. How about yeah. you come ride you... with us? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> but those BCs that were actually yeah. assigned in those stations would show up, would take calls, you know, would do, I mean, it's the same kind of human. So again, the people that walk the walk, the people that are truly there that have that service driving, um, burning inside them that, that truly care about the family that is, you know, a lot of times the headquarters station or whatever it is, um, you know, that's the same kind of human. And if you watch, if they're well-trained and you empower them to do their job, mm -hmm. it's a very hands-off leadership yeah. approach. Yep. I liken leadership to, uh, because I'm male, to be to like a father, you know. And uh, fathers have to keep authority. You're a father. Um, but at the same time, you're you're a servant. I mean... My kids didn't make my lunch today before I brought them to school. They didn't drive me here. You know, I'm, I'm serving them, you know, that, and I want them to succeed. And I know them. I know what they need. I know what they don't need, you know, and not, not to, um, belittle firemen because they're not children. I'm just saying that idea of servitude of why we're doing that is what needs to take place at a station level if we're going to su succeed in modern times as a, as a fire department or pretty much anywhere. I mean, servant leadership's not my idea. I didn't make it up. Um, but that's how we get forward. That's, we have to shun, uh, unfortunately what society is telling us leadership is and realize that's not it. What it is, is servant leadership. It's leadership where those in that are tr trying to lead to be in charge put the, the crew first in front of everything. And it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of sacrifice and self-control and humility. Those things for me 
Yeah. And you apply those labels to the last two presidents we've had humility, selfless service, etc. Right. You know, question that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not a polit- political statement. It's just right. simply that's we used to look as a leader you know and even there so you want to get behind someone that has those qualities you look at that person and say i want to be that that's how you know where 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 a true leader is if you look at the people above you right and whoever that is it could be your captain it could be a lieutenant or battalion chief or a, a sergeant whatever your your hierarchy is all the way up when you look at those people it's not about where you want to be, it's but who you want to be. Like, yeah, I'd like to be the chief one day. That's different. I'm saying I want to be him. Yeah. That's who a leader is. The guy you want to be, not the position that he's in. I think as well, the, the, the man or woman that you know, gives you a, right. a, a command on a fire mm-hmm. and you don't think twice about it. Yeah. That's a leader. Yep. The person that gives you a command and you end up doing the opposite because they're going to get you killed. You know, yep. and it can be like you said, a life or death event, or it can be a medical call and they've got no compassion. I mean, I've had times where I've had to take a patient away from an engine crew because the lieutenant was such a fucking asshole. I'm having yep. to do damage control on a person who's called 911 because they're, they're ill. So, so yeah, I mean, like you said, the, the person in that rank. I and mean, again, band of brothers, you salute yep. the rank, not the person. Yep. You know, you, I couldn't give a shit if you're a chief, if you're an asshole. I'm, as you said with the probie, I'd much rather be with a firefighter who's a good person. Yeah. And, and that's, it's hard to do, especially in leadership role when you're always trying to set an example, you're trying to be something, you're trying to be happy, you're trying to make your way in life. All this crap doesn't go away because, you know, you're you're a leader now, you know, and, and there's almost zero help to become one. There's barely any mentorship programs. Well, you think about even the educational route. It's not teaching you how to lead. No, not, it's not, not teaching you people means. skills. And it's one of those things where you take a test. Congratulations. You're a leader now. And by the way, you can't mess up. It should be perfect. Otherwise, there's possible litigation. So, you know, we have to band together to to mentor to teach to to how to lead and and all these things and and it's not like one person either everyone can be a leader in something even even day one guy can be a leader in something there's something he knows that we don't know Mm -hmm. or she knows that we don't know that's why i always hated there was always the kind of rules for a probie poster that would be in a lot of places and it was like you know no one cares where you, which department you were on before or where you came from right yeah, like, that's, i do yeah i do too i want to know yeah, i want to know what the heck you did you're a carpenter why. you're gonna know a lot more about exactly. know, building construction than i do i was a farm boy yep i can teach you about you know wrestling sheep yep. <laughs> you my, my driver that. is a really good uh with with construction electrical all that stuff so if we're on you know, some call we're trying to hunt down some electrical gremlin in a house, something sparked or whatever. I'm turning him loose. I'm like, go ahead, man. This is your exactly. <laughs> this is your day. You tell me what you want. You got the you know? uh, pediatric nurses on your crew yeah. when it comes to PD calls. I'm not going to be like, I'll get the IV. Yeah, we, I mean, you know, if I need to, I will. But I mean, ideally, he's done a thousand of them. He's far more likely to be successful. And if my ego isn't fragile, I'll be like, Brad, this is, you know, yeah. this is you. If you want to, I'll do it if you, if you don't. But 100%. My idea of success is being a radio jockey. That's it. I go, my truck is truck five, truck five and route. We get there, truck five arrival. Whatever, you know, radio traffic that's necessary in between. And then truck five in service. And I don't have to say a thing because they know what to do. Yeah. They're professional firemen. They're paramedics. 
they're grownups. Unless, you know, there's something I see a safety thing or whatever, you know, why should I get in their way of doing what they know how to do? And that comes from trust, that comes from training, that comes from knowing that I have their back, all those things together, you know, and that's what makes, you know, a healthy crew. That's what makes this job so great. And that is what can help us to shoulder all of the things that we shoulder that come along with it. Because there's no reason to lie to ourselves about this job, to me. It's the greatest and the best job in the world, and it's the worst job in the world. That's the dichotomy of it. You know, this, people get offended time. when you're trying to question stuff and make it better. It's like, well, it's like I've had, it, I mean, once in a blue moon, say something like, well, why don't you just go back to England then? Because that would be the bitch move. Fixing it and staying yep. is what a true patriot does. Making it the the best job in the world as much as possible, probably 99% of the time, if not more, is is what we want. Because there's those times where it's not the best job in the world. When you're holding someone, a baby, a child, you know, and, and they're, they've either died or will die, that I, I'm sorry, but it's not the best job in the world. But we need to make it every other moment than that. Well, for people listening, I'm sure they're they're kind of, you know, bought in now as far as you <laughs> as a leader in the fire service. It's not like you've been, you know, trying to sell people on it, but I can tell that you just are. Your book, The Modern Fire Officer, what made you read it? And then um, can I give people an overview of what they'll find between the cover? Um, so uh, I had the privilege of helping uh, um, people mentor them to become officers um, on, on my shift and even cross shifts I have a good working relationship with my battalion chief and I'm more established as a captain and I'm at our uh, like kind of a center busy station. Um, we have a lot of stuff going on in our zone. Uh, very busy uh, regional airport, over 100,000 flights a year, major jets for most of that. Um, we have water utility plants, FAU, which is a major college, Lynn University, another college, a major mall. We have old folks homes. We have high rise. We have residential. We have light commercial. We have some light industrial. We have trains that go through it. We, we got everything going through this zone. Uh, so there's a lot to learn there. And there's a lot to be, uh, I want to say scared of, but to respect. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where you want to get signed off as a captain. You pretty much need to end up there and and go through your paces on on looking at these hazards and understanding all those things so i just found myself saying like the same spiels you know <laughs> over and over again and what i realized is is it wasn't about mitigating hazards it wasn't about like the target hazards as much as it was the hazards within the firehouse because we, we do a, a lot of training on, on those things, on, on how to pull lines, on how to put fire out, on how to work a cardiac arrest, on how to whatever, you know. But we don't do really any training on how to deal with people, on how to be empathetic, on how to, um, how to really get the right perspective on, on what we're doing on, and, and to keep a positive perspective um, and I talk about that too in the book a little bit. I call it constant perspective realignment, where you have to understand that you're actually doing pretty good. Somebody's got it worse. So just be happy for what you have. It's a contentment thing. Um, so 
I'm saying these same things over and over again to each one of the the guys that I'm that I'm helping sign off or doing their final sign off on becoming a, an officer, and I'm I realize to myself why not put this in a book, you know, and and then make them buy it. No. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll be rich. Yeah, then, then I'll, I can then live I'll in Boca. A one hundred air because <laughs> that's about how much. Uh, uh, no, so. I figured I'll, I'll write it all down, and and I thought, well, who am I, you know, to write a book? I've been on the department for 15 years. It means nothing. No one. I mean, I'm not on social media because I don't feel that it brings any, um, like, uh, value to my life. So I'm not on it, and so no one knows who the heck I am. I'm not, you know, anyone anyone would recognize. So I thought, like, I mean, who would even read it? Um, but I said, why wait, you know? And actually, John Cuomo uh, finished his book, That Leadership Refined by Fire, and gave me a copy, and he and I read it, and he kind of inspired me to to do mine. And so I did. And I put all those things that I had learned. I still have much more to learn. Like I said, I didn't create or, um, you know, find leadership. I just, I'm trying to use these things that, in my experience, that have worked, that that help um, it, it, my method might not be for everybody, um, but I think there's many, many th- truths in there that people can take from. And it's an easy read. It's it's not a it's not a large book. I made it that way on purpose. I, I didn't fill it full of war stories. Um, I, I just wanted it. I wanted a fireman to be able to pick that up and say, I could I could read this. You know, I'm, it's not four thousand pages. Which is I, an I important could. point because as we talked about with the sleep deprived mind. It was only after I retired that I really started to be able to read again, like properly read. So it, mine's the same. Mine's almost like 12 short stories, so 12 right. chapters. But that was a deliberate yeah, thing as well. It's pretty much the same size as your book. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it, I think it's a great idea because, yeah. a, you know, a 300-page book is just it's overwhelming daunting. to it's someone daunting. that barely sweeps. Yeah. So I, I, my, my hope is, is that the many firemen that want to become officers... Um, that don't have a mentorship program that are thirsting for some kind of knowledge, some kind of advice would, would read this book and gain something from it and, you know, and, and make something better. And hopefully, you know, when they respond to emergencies in their, in their town, their city, it makes a difference because, you know, I've, I've used 911 before, you know, for my family and it's a big deal. You know, and I and I would hope that uh, we remember that and that we continue to uh, not only give a high level of service, but have fun doing it. You know, try to find the fun in all of it because it is fun. It, a lot of it can be a, a good time. Like, believe me, like, you're going to call at 3 a.m. for, you know, an older lady that her uh, smoke alarm has been beeping for two weeks. Am I excited about it? <laughs> getting the old heart rate up. Right? <laughs> Not really, you know, get, getting woke up or whatever it may be. But listen, look around her house. Okay. Hey, uh, oh, I saw you did this. So, you know, how, how was that in your life? And oh, yeah, I did that. You know, you're, you're connecting with someone. You're, you're making a positive what could be a negative. Instead of storming in there like, we don't do that. You know, I'm not, whatever, getting pissed off about it, making it a negative experience. Just make it a positive experience. It takes work. But when you continually to do that, you can have fun doing this always, right? And 
and the the idea of the book is that is how to create that that atmosphere that situation how to make yourself the right person um or better because we can all get better um and then how to extend that into the firehouse environment and then how to deal with problems as they arise because they will and 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 the extras too like the the things that we shoulder the ptsd the different things that that is a truth it's not a an if but a when right so it, it's all those things kind of wrapped into one a little piece of advice uh from me to you that hopefully helps and i hope it does and you know i've had to read it a bunch of times you know i did everything on that book myself i i took the picture for the cover I did all the artwork, whatever, the, did the blurb, did everything except the editing. I paid a a, um, a, a, a lady online that's part of Reedsy or whatever to, to edit it for me. So I, I care about that book. I read it like a hundred times before I, I published it. And, you know, every time I did, I was like, man, I got to get better at this stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, it, but what I'm getting at is it's a work in progress. Everything's a work in progress. Enjoy the ride. You know, it's, it's the climb, right? Well, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have written books on leadership. Some are phenomenal. Some got a bugle on their shirt and decided that now they're going to teach right. everyone else how to be as awesome as right. them. But I think what's really endearing to me is hearing your story and hearing the humility and hearing it, it's not about, you know, you know, the, the tenets, this follow step A, B, and C, and you too can be a great lady. You're using not only, you know, your lived experience, but also the vulnerability. And like you said, the mental health side, I think if ever there's a leadership quality at the moment, it's courageous vulnerability, you know, and owning your mistakes and, and having the humility to, to trust people that you work with to, like you said, to do their job. Um, so I think, you know, it's, 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 this conversation has pulled me into even, you know, like in the book even more. But, um, and like you said, with the, the social media thing, just so you know, it's, it's a, a great tool, but it's not anywhere near as powerful as people think. I can tell you now with, you know, a pseudo large following word of mouth is the best thing. Right. And if it's a good book, other people will tell it. And it is the other people will tell other people and, you know, it'll, it'll get yeah, out there that it's, way. It's uh, been received very well. I'm very, uh, appreciative to many people that have read it and have reached out to me and and they really enjoyed it and um and i'll say that um if you have read it please leave me a review uh whatever you feel is appropriate and i read all of them like too much <laughs> like, I'll go, I'll go <laughs> you definitely don't need social media right. then, trust that's, me <laughs> that's why i can't have social media because i'm too emotional for that crap you know uh, it drives me nuts but but yeah it's um you know please please leave a review uh, i hope you enjoy it and um i hope it brings you some nugget you know that helps you in your career um that's my truth um i'm not perfect i try to do those things that are in there as best as i can but life has a funny way of uh you know getting in the way here and there and it is what it is enjoy the ride right so where can people find the book uh, it's pretty much, I think, uh, on almost all major like retailers. Uh, Amazon, pretty much, like I think everyone has. Amazon has taken over the world. You can find it there. It's it's you can find it at Barnes and Nobles. You can find it on 
I think in in audio form on, on almost any um, platform, I think too. But uh, I, pretty much, if you if you go to my website modernfireofficer.com, there's plenty of uh, links to different things for it on there. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the all the major players. It's, it would be hard not to find it, essentially, if you. And that thankfully, it's so easy now to be able to publish a book like that. that it's kind of like taking the mysticism away, and you can, you know, get these get your voice out there. So just like this form, you know, podcast, long form conversation. It's such like a a nice part of of uh, you know modern publication. Absolutely. Now, did you self publish? Self publish, yeah. 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 Very cool. So it was a adventure. <laughs> yeah. Did you go through Amazon though, KDP, or did yeah, you I went through KDP. Yeah. Okay. Because I Barnes and Noble doesn't stock mine. Did you do the one where? Because you have the one where you're exclusive mm-hmm. Amazon, and you did the other one yeah. where you're more open. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what I might have to switch to that because I think the initial um, wave that I had is kind of dwindled down now, and it would just be kind of cool to go into a bookshop and be like, "Yeah, it's my book," and take a load of selfies and put it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of books, Modern Fire Officer is yours. Are there any books that you love to recommend outside your own? Um, it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Okay. Um, I, I would say uh, like a fire-related book. Um, I really enjoyed, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but uh, my my buddy, John Cuomo, his, his book, uh, Leadership Refined by Fire, I would say that that is like a coming of age of leadership is how I would describe that. His um, kind of journey through it and what he learned, and but it's it's really big brain re- reading. Like he goes into um, different resources like Tolstoy and Nietzsche, and talks about uh, you know Marcus Aurelius's writing. So it, it it's it's a read, but it's worth the read um, for fire department related. I would say if you just want a book for now, and you're not scared of reading. <laughs> I, I would go with Ray Dalio, um, The Changing World Order. That is a great book. Uh, he really outlines um, societal cycles and where we are in it now and how that affects economy and, and different things that we deal with day to day. If you want to have a little bit more knowledge of, of the world around you, that's a great book. I, I'm, I'm reading that right now. I'm re- also reading Granite Mountain right now oh yeah brendan mcdonald yeah that's that's good um and then i mean i i got it i'm kind of like a, a bookworm the guys that work make fun of me all the time because i'm constantly reading they think i'm a wacko um if you want like a good timepiece type book shogun from james clavell that's a great that's one of my favorite books ever i love that isn't book. that amazing yeah if you want like a good kind of more new new science type uh, time travel multiverse, Dark Matter is one of my favorites. That's a great book. I mean, my my wife and I we we read a lot. I think we're in like this weird co- competition that we don't talk about who can read more. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, shows are so dumb anymore. You know, it's it's nicer to read to me like. They haven't even. They they don't even call it art anymore. It's just called content. Mm-hmm. It's just filler. Well, especially now with ChatGPT, you can literally ask AI right. to make write my some movie. bullshit for write you. Write my next book, The Modern Officer Two. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that. I promise. <laughs> well, that's when I mean, you talked about the medium. That's why my second book, 
I'm writing a novel, but the goal is to make it into a show or a film mm. because that's how you access people yeah. and try and put yeah. something where when they hit stop, hopefully they walk away with a bunch of seeds sown on all kinds of things. Because, yeah, I mean, how many times... And you're talking about millions of dollars in the budget and you're like, that was fucking all... I mean, yeah, perfect example, terrible. Backdraft 2. I don't right. know if you ever watched that. <laughs> and I had... Um, Chief Steve Chick on the show, who was behind Chicago Fire, okay. amazing guy. But um, I asked him about that too, and he just—it's <laughs> like no comment. Yeah, but because he was somewhat affiliated that slightly. But yeah, I mean, Those this is the thing—you you just destroyed a, the potential of a beautiful fire service story by right. turning it into a god awful soap opera. Yeah, so. everything's just content now. It's filler, it, and they, they don't even act like it's anything else. And it, you can tell it's it's junk food. Yep, exactly. Junk food for the mind. All right. Well, then, what about, we were just talking about films, what about movies and documentaries? Any that you do like? Uh, for documentaries, um, I'm really into, like, the search and rescue kind of stuff because I did, uh, like, kind of hazmat and special ops earlier in my career. Um, so the uh, Ch Chilean miner documentary, I think it, I want to say it's PBS, but I don't know if it's PBS. Um it's a documentary that goes through what they did to get those Chilean miners out. And it is incredible um, that they just released a few documentaries. I think one's on prime and, and also shows that uh, dramatize it. But the, um, the soccer players, kids in, in Thailand, Thailand, the yeah. Thai cave rescue, man, they're, they're um, I think Disney did a show prime did a show, but there's also another, I wish I knew the medium that did the the documentary. It is worth the watch, and it's also worth watching the the dramatization of the of that rescue. Yeah, it's it's and if you're like me, bring some tissues. <laughs> I, I approached. There was a British firefighter that was part. Of I know. The, yeah, I know, and yeah, that what a talk about having the right thing at the right moment. There's like no one else that could do this. Literally. Yeah. Well, I it's reached insane. out to him and I got a very abrasive response, but this was somewhat early on in the podcast, somewhat, yeah. somewhat soon-ish after. He might have been being I think inundated he, with... Or he was dealing with the trauma. Yeah, or, yeah you know I mean, what I mean? that's dramatic. So I want to circle around and see if I can find him. That'd be amazing. Yeah. To, yeah, talk to him about that. It's crazy. Absolutely. Um, what else? Uh, Deepest Breath on I just Netflix. Watched that. God, I'm watching. My wife watched it. She tells me you have to watch this. It's insane. But I can't tell you anything about it. Yeah, otherwise yeah. I'll ruin it. <laughs> I'm watching it. I won't say anything to ruin it. But I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? Like, could you, could you imagine being one of the paramedics for that? You're you're going into it knowing what you're doing every time. Exactly. It's insane. Yeah. It's crazy. Did you ever watch The Alpinist? Yeah. climbing movie same yeah. thing yeah it's, it's, it's so beautifully done yeah yeah, yeah they're, they're they're very well done um man for movies i'm a christopher nolan fan i gotta say i mean i love his movies they're so smart um interstellar i love um i mean in inception all those are did so you enjoy good. tenet i just had this conversation with someone you have so the thing about tenet is you have to un he jam packs so much into those movies that if you are not like if you didn't do like a line of coke before and you have like the most perfect uh, concentration on the dialogue, you're going to lose a lot. 
the the best thing to do is when you watch that movie you're thinking to yourself what just happened <laughs> you know, at the end, it, it, I mean, it's it's a it's a sight to see. Don't get me wrong; it's crazy the special effects and everything. But do yourself a favor and watch a YouTube video on what he actually did in that that's, movie. That's what someone told then me. watch it again. Then you're like, oh my god, this is a work of art. This is insane. The the scenes where he has them in reverse because there's yeah. a scene in there where he where he rolls a pen on the desk and they talk about time either goes forward or backwards we we always think in time movies that you're skipping but in that movie he's showing you that it actually rolls forward or rolls backwards so it's linear both ways okay right so in those scenes where they're one timeline they're actually going forward linear and one time they're actually going backwards like in the fight scenes mm-hmm. you're literally watching them go right. past each other if you watch those scenes on youtube where they put them together in a split screen it'll blow your mind it's crazy what he was able to do okay. in those movies yeah it that really made that movie for me looking back at at, at those i think the timing was what because it was literally i don't know if it was the same for other people out there but for my wife and I, that was literally the first film that you could go to a movie right, theater yeah. and watch after COVID yep. in Florida, at least. So, you know, you've been bottled up and you've been exposed yep. to Tiger King and all this shit. Yeah. I think it was just like <laughs> you said, you know, it's like, you know, being being a baby coming out the womb and then finding yep. yourself in a Hawaiian triathlon. Right, it was just yeah. too much. I know. It was a lot. So. Funny story. I once saw that with my wife, too, when that happened. And it was, you know, it's like three and a half hours. And my wife has her limit you know so <laughs> we're about an hour and a half in and i look over and she's looking at me and and i was like you can pick me up after you <laughs> she's like yeah i'm going home i'll come back and get you I was like, okay, good. <laughs> and she just straight left you know and i was watched the rest of the movie i'm like i knew her i was like if you want to go home go ahead she's like i'm going home i'll come back and get you i was like okay no problem <laughs> i know i just remember i think we we he pulled us in so we were engrossed but i just remember at the end both looking at each other yeah and, and she was like what in the fuck was that and yeah. i was like i don't know and then when, we, just when went, you, we went yeah <laughs> when, when it's it's but it's that's what that's art though when you when you talk about it after yeah exactly you know and you're what was that we have to figure this out we have to peel back the layers when there's layers that peel back and then you're like whoa this is this is pretty intense look what he was trying to say yeah yeah and this is what i want with with what i'm doing is to do that so when i give you a perfect example the movie crash yeah, it wasn't yeah. just about a cop and right, racism right. and everything. You um, you actually watch it. And I've watched that numerous times, and you see it. I mean, if ever there's a movie needed today with all right. the polarity and division, right, right, watch right. Crash. Yep, because it's not just a waste, racist white cop, you yeah. know, and it, it's mm-hmm. actually the nuances of everyone's human experience. Right. So that you know, I love those movies. I just need right. to go back and maybe watch the YouTube video yeah. <laughs> so I can understand. A lot of art has been hijacked. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because now you have to be politically attitudes. correct and yeah. all this bullshit too. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, then, Christopher Nolan. Speaking of of great people, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Mm, that's a good question. I would have to say again, um, John Cuomo is is one of them, and he's he's coming book. on. I think he's writing a second book, isn't he? Yeah, so he is. I, I and believe it's all about PTSD. Yeah. So when that's out, legislature. Yeah. So it, there, I think that's like a really good fit. Um, my battalion chief is uh, 
he's been in the fire department and the fire service a long time like since he was born so we're making the joke because he was like a kid when he got hired you know and they hired kid and the kids in the i'm gonna make fun of him in the 50s he's not that old <laughs> but uh he he's very well versed in um in the fire department he would know all about the history of our uh shift beautiful what's his name scott ward scott ward yeah. okay so, when, so we'll if make he listens to this he's gonna have a smile on his face he's been trying to get me to become a battalion chief and i keep saying yeah i like where i'm at i'm like where i'm at so much to his chagrin but he he's a, he's a good dude and he's got a lot to say he's, he's very smart with he's, he's definitely a, a good voice to span some generations as well perfect thank you all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you even though it's not going to be on social media um what do you do to decompress so um i have like a lot of hobbies <laughs> i'm not very good at maybe any one of them per se but uh, i really enjoy i mean it's florida so when when we actually do get surf i'd love to go out and surf even even if it's there's barely anything out there i'll just paddle out and enjoy the view really just even if i'm alone i just get to enjoy the water it's mine um or play music um i i play guitar for a long time i'm pretty good at that um and then i just pretty much learn drums and piano um that's i'm learning that a lot more because that's my like self-care is is playing those things it's uh um i think it's very good for your mind you know, music in general, but playing music is so good for your mind to help create um, better connections, if that makes any sense. You know, on the synaptic level, I'm not trying to get like... No, it does. Well, you I know just... what I'm trying to say? Like, I feel like I'm even smarter after I... Like, if I, before I did this interview, I played piano because I, I feel like it, it makes me... Like, it makes the fog go away, you know? So and then all the little like arts and crafts kind of stuff like that, you know, I, the the shield, yeah, kind of that. So joke. you know, made me a uh, a leather shield with behind the shield on to put on my leather American helmet, <laughs> 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 which I need to get because the problem is when you move fire departments like I did, they they make you give the helmets back. Yeah. So only Anaheim was I able to secure, um, you know, my bunker gear. So I still got my California helmet, but. I just try, I'm just like, I have a voracious appetite to do everything and anything. Like during COVID, I, I went, I learned how to hang glide, uh, actually up near you, Wallaby Ranch. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, I got my license doing that. Um, go like gator hunting that, that from my, the hang glider. Yeah. <laughs> from the, if only FWC could see that, <laughs> like anything, any. My my buddy, one of my buddies at work, they they hunt pythons in, in the Everglades, and I was like, yeah, I'll go do that. And my wife's like, you are insane. Why are you trying to do this? But I don't know. That's the spice of life. Just doing everything, trying everything. I mean, I know I'm not going to be good at everything. I'm not even close to it. But it's just still fun, you know, just to try it and hopefully, you know, not get bit or get killed doing by anything by <laughs> boa constrictor. But it's, yeah, <laughs> but it would be a cool story, you know what I mean? At least at the funeral, they're like the guy, you know, he lived his life, got killed by a python. Yeah, the coffin, the coffin, the coffin <laughs> is eight inches wide and twelve feet long. Yeah, yeah the, the snake's still around me in the open casket. But yeah, I mean, that's that's my self care is is like the little hobbies, things like that, and doing that with my my boys, trying to get them involved and having fun. Like I, 
you know, have them 3D print something like a new toy, have them try to design it with me. We just like designed a a birdhouse. He wanted to make a birdhouse. So we did it together in CAD and then we 3D printed it together and stuff like that. Just like to show them what I know. So I want them to be successful, you know, more than me. Does your mom get a kick out the fact that the kids are now doing 3D printing using the same kind of background that she did early on? Yeah, yeah, she, she, my my mom is like, she, where I've learned a lot of this stuff is for my parents, they did anything and everything. It was more out of a necessity, you know, to, to, to try to make ends meet, but, um, I, they involved me in that, so I, I learned those things, but I mean, she's got this like back room the size of this room that we're in, and I mean, any possible thing you can imagine doing is in there somewhere. Like if you wanted to do like make stained glass or something, it's in there. If you wanted to do leather working, it's in there. If you wanted to make a dress, there's sewing machines and textiles. I mean, anything that you could think of is in there. So she loves it, you know. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, you mentioned about not being on social media. So if people do want to reach out to you or learn more about you, where are the best places online? Online, really, the only place is the is my website, modernfireofficer.com. It doesn't have the the, it's just modernfireofficer.com. And there's a contact uh, page on there that, that actually goes to my actual email. So, And I've already responded to a few people. There's a few people that asked me for, um, you know, some of our protocols and some of the things they heard me talk about on other pro, uh, podcasts that I got to them reached that reached out to me, which was great, like to be able to share some info. Um, but yeah, I, I will respond to that, that, you know, it's not, I'm not getting, I'm not getting inundated with emails from it. So I will respond to you if you'd like to, to reach out to me. And, and again, if you re- read my book, you, and you want to read, uh, leave a review, I'll definitely be reading that too. To, to my own detriment, possibly. So try to be nice. <laughs> my friend Jason Casper, who's an author, he actually does a Instagram video of all the worst reviews. I think he calls it Review Roulette. Yeah, and yeah. He'll just you know pick up a new one and, and then read it. And yep. he's, he's a pretty pretty funny guy. But yeah. yeah, I mean some of the the nasty stuff that people write. I know, and the trolls are there. <laughs> They're out there looking. They are indeed. Well, Jared, I want to say thank you so much. It's been. An amazing conversation. I mean, we've been all over the place from, you know, laughing about stuff in the fire service to your kind of powerful mental health story. Oh, one thing I didn't actually, before we close out, I never uh, kind of pulled out from you. What was it that got you from that place? Your wife identified, you said she was a big part of your healing. What were the tools that you used to get away from that, um, you know, built up vicarious trauma and the anger that you were manifesting? Uh, first, first off, I was honest with myself. Like when I realized what it was, like I, I said, I have PTSD, like I have it and it's okay. Like, but then I also realized that if I have it, you know, what does that mean? I thought about it, like then, you know, no one's going to get away from this. This is something that then I'll also have to deal with it being, you know, a leader in the fire department or just with my family in general or just with anything. Um, so the acceptance part is it's kind of like the five stages of death a little bit, you know, where you have to accept it. You finally get to that point. But, um, I had to kind of deal with some of those issues. Really the the biggest thing was, was community was like talking about it with, with my wife. Hopefully I didn't put too much on her talking about it with people that I trust at the fire department. We didn't have a, we have a, we had a CISM kind of system built in, but I wouldn't say, it was robust 
to be nice about that. We're working on a peer support team now that is much better. I'm surprised you guys weren't more immersed in that with the Florida yeah. Safety and Health Club. Yeah, we, we're, so we're a little behind the ball, unfortunately, but we're, we're, we have a team that I'm trying to help. Um, I'm not the coordinator or anything like that. I'm just trying to, to be a help and to be a, a peer support person that somebody could come to me if they want to hear me cry. <laughs> 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 you know, that's like rule number one. Don't, don't cry, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, for the, for if you're the peer support person, I'm not sure how good I'm going to be at this, but, um, I'm trying to, you know, help the, the system. We didn't really have a robust system at the time. We had like a list of names you could call and the, and the, some of the ones on there, I'm like, yeah, you know, and that's okay. It's not that they're not great or anything. It's just that that's not who I wanted to reach out to. So I reached out to the people that, that I wanted to, that I could trust. Yeah. And I had that, luckily I had that, wish I could do that. And, uh, that, with um paired with you know with my wife helping me and under and listening to me and understanding me um and me being honest with her too to where like if i was in that mode i would tell her i'm, I'm not feeling good today and it's not because it's not because of you it's because like i'm going through something it has to do with work it has to do with something that i saw i relived it this morning and just i'm, I'm sorry if i'm short or for whatever and she's like okay you know and and you know Thankfully, we have a very strong relationship, you know, but but she's smart enough to know what that is. And uh, I can't and I don't think anyone should really burden their wives or uh, spouses with every single thing you've ever gone through. That's not fair. But um, you have to be honest with them to let them know what you're going through and why to a degree, you know, and hopefully they will respond by allowing certain outbursts <laughs> or bad behavior uh, to take place in a, in a small amount. Um, but she was, she was a strength. Um, and then, you know, peers and just figuring out what it was that was bothering me. Cause there was about a year where like, I didn't know what it was. Like I kept trying to figure it out and I couldn't figure it out. Cause it's, it was a weird to me, a weird emotion to be guilty overseeing some, someone die because I'm not the person that should be with them. Like, it's kind of a strange, it was a strange thing to me. But when it, when it hit, it clicked. And I was like, that's it. But that shows huge empathy that you care that much about the person you lost that you're even thinking about who they should have been with. Right. Because, well, it's like that thing where they're like staring at you, you know, those pleading eyes. And it's like, who am I? You know, yeah. really. And then I think of like, who do I want to look at? It's not you, not me. Nah, you no know, one, like, no yeah. one wants to look at this ugly <laughs> mug. Some, some bum fireman. I don't want to be looking at him. I want to look at my family. You know, I want to be around them when I die. Not, not this guy, you know. So I don't know. It was a weird thing for me. And, but for everyone, it's going to be different. But once I figured that out and, and you know, being honest with it, being open with it, um, I probably should have sought therapy. Um, I didn't really know where to start. We didn't really have a, a program you know, robust enough. And, uh, and I was ill prepared. Um, but being open about it, accepting it, and then leaning on that community, my, my wife and, and certain close friends, that's what helped me. And then figuring it out and then dealing with it and then understanding and then researching it too. Like, okay, I got to do self care. This is what takes this away, you know, and then communicating that with my wife, like, I need to do this. This is what makes me better. 
It's not like I'm just trying to get out, you know, watching the kids for a couple hours. I, I'm not in a great place right now. You know, being uh, being open and honest. Yeah, I mean, even last night, I, I my wife's gone through some stuff the last few weeks, and then my son, you know, getting up to his birthday and everything. The fact that I was in tears more so than normal making that video, and then last night we were supposed to go see the Gran Turismo film, right, and his birthday, and I was like can we go see it Tuesday? Like I am, I know me and I need right, to, yeah. I need to get some sleep. You're going to be know, crying through the whole movie. Everyone's going to be looking at you. Like, it's it's a racing <laughs> movie. What's wrong with him? I know. Nothing's sad. You're racing. But yeah. I'm thinking of Lightning McQueen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, again, like I started saying before, it was an important segue though to, to get your, yeah. your toolbox that you found. Um, it's been an amazing conversation. So I want to thank you for welcoming me here to your friend's studio and yeah. being so courageously vulnerable today. And, and yeah. the book, I mean, the book is amazing. So for everyone, again, the modern fire officer, find it everywhere. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you, James. Thank you.